Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether a brutal dictator getting AGI first would be a good thing or a bad thing. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. Max Tegmark will already be known to many of you as a gregarious activist, polymath, physics professor, as well as the founder of the Future of Life Institute, which works to address many of the problems we discuss on this show. Today, our central topic is advances in artificial intelligence, which is a hot issue at the moment, given the wildly impressive and, at least for some of us, very alarming recent advances coming out of labs like OpenAI and DeepMind. These advances are starting to have real practical implications, probably the most important of which is that we've already started using OpenAI's tool DALI to generate beautiful banner images for the blog posts that come out with each of our podcast episodes. You don't need to know much at all about AI going in to follow this one, as Max starts off with a broad intro to the topic. We then move on to these recent advances in capabilities and alignment, the mood we should have about them, possible ways we might have misunderstood the problem in the past, and killer robots as a nearer-term issue. We then spend the last third, roughly, uh, talking about Max's current big passion, that is, improving the news we consume. An endeavor that I like, but have a couple of reservations about. All right, without further ado, here's Max Tagmark. Today, I'm speaking with Max Tagmark. Max is an MIT professor and president of the Future of Life Institute, a nonprofit organization that works to reduce existential risks facing humanity. After focusing on cosmology for 25 years, he shifted his MIT research group to machine learning six years ago, helping launch MIT's Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Fundamental Interactions. That group is trying to use ideas from physics to make AI safer by rendering its inner workings more transparent. Outside his academic work, Max has had a hand in all sorts of interesting things over the years. For instance, he was an instigator of the so-called Puerto Rico Conference in 2014 and the Asilomar Conference in 2017, uh, events which brought together the heavy hitters in artificial intelligence research to discuss both the opportunities and the risks that were being created by their work and hopefully agree principles that would reduce the latter. He has overseen $9 million in grants for technical research to make advanced AI safer, funded by Elon Musk, and another $25 million in grants, more recently, to tackle a range of global catastrophic risks, this time funded by Vitalik Buterin. He's also been involved in international campaigns not only to reduce threats from killer robots, but also nuclear weapons. Finally, aside from the many technical papers he's written that I probably could not follow, Max is the author of Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality, and Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, both of which made the US bestseller list. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Max. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope we'll get to chat about what should be done about the threats and opportunities arising from the progress we're seeing uh, every day in AI and your new project to improve access to reliable news. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? I'm working on a number of things, both uh, having a lot of fun um, helping lead the Future Life Institute to reduce threats from uh, nuclear war, synthetic biology, people doing dumb things with ever more powerful AI and trying to steer the course of humanity in a direction where we can really f- flourish with all this tech rather than flounder with it. I'm also continuing to do some fun, nerdy research with my MIT research group on machine learning, as you mentioned. And uh, my big COVID project to not go stir crazy during the pandemic was <laughs> to focus on how we could use some of these machine learning tools to actually improve the media ecosystem which, as we can come back to, I think is critically necessary for anyone interested in effective altruism and uh, and steering our course in a good direction. Yeah, I guess you're one of these people who 
just seems to always be working on a ton of different things all at once. You got, you know, you got the AI safety stuff, you got the cosmology, this media thing is somewhat new, you got nuclear weapons, bio, kind of everything. Yeah, in your, in your mind, how do, how do all of these different threads connect, connect together and form a cohesive whole? That's a great question, because it first sounds like it's just a random grab bag of stuff, even though it's actually, in my mind, all part of one very simple story. I mean, you know, it's impossible to spend 25 years studying our universe, right, without being struck by how far we are from fulfilling our potential as a, as a human species, right? Here we are after 13.8 billion years of cosmic history, waking up on, on this little blue spinning ball in space, realizing that, oh my goodness, this this awesome reality we're in, it's much grander than our ancestors thought. And even this vast earth is just a teeny tiny bit of of what life could ultimately be doing in the future. And and it, we're also realizing that we have much more potential to actually be the captains of our own destiny, right? We spent most of human evolutionary history over 100,000 years just trying to not get stepped on or eaten up by or starving to death, lame stuff like that, and feeling very powerless knowing that, you know, the next generation would have the same technology as the last generation. And yet... What's happening now is we're realizing that we had underestimated not just the size of our cosmos and our potential, but our ability to get empowered through looking carefully at the world around us. We've gotten science enabling us to understand enough about how our universe works that we've been able to build all this awesome technology that can put us in charge and we can start shaping our our own destiny. If you look at uh, some photos of the Earth today, it looks very different in many places from how it used to, because we've shaped it this way. And on a larger scale, if you look through a telescope, our universe still looks mostly dead. We have, we had a big, you can speculate about aliens, etc. But it looks at face value, like life is, like the whole thing is mostly dead and life is just a tiny perturbation. And yet uh, we now know that with the technology that we're on the cusp of developing, there's no reason whatsoever why we couldn't help life spread and make much of our universe come alive too. So those are empowering thoughts. You know, we have so much potential and yet <laughs> turn on the news, you know, and like, oops, <laughs> what are we doing? People are, one child is starving to death in Yemen every 11 minutes. We're busy killing each other in, in, in stupid wars. And we might even be hoisting ourselves with our own petard by taking some of some technologies that could be used for great things and using them to ultimately drive ourselves extinct. So in summary, I'm, I feel there's both a hugely exciting opportunity and also a moral responsibility for, to, to think hard about the big picture. So how can we take all this ever more powerful tech and steer it in good rather than bad directions? And before we delve into any of these individual topics, Let's just talk a bit maybe about how the different pieces in the puzzle fit together. Yeah, yeah, go for it. For every science, yeah, for every science, of course, you can do great stuff with it or, and not so great stuff. So we physicists feel very proud that we gave the world lasers and computers and a lot of other things. We feel a lot more guilty about giving the world the 13,000 hydrogen bombs that we have on Earth right now that have almost triggered catastrophic nuclear war about a dozen times by accident. And it keeps happening. And, and, and right now we have politicians here in the U.S. Congress who are seriously talking about going to war with Russia. What could possibly go wrong there? If you look at biology, again, 
of course, has been hugely helpful to cure diseases and help us live longer and healthier lives. But you can also use biology, especially modern synthetic biology, to create new designer pandemics, which make all past diseases seem like you know kindergarten in comparison. Yeah, um, bi- biologists have so far been the scientists who have done the best job, I think, of of really drawing a red line and saying we're not going to do that stuff. Then you got chemistry. It's given us all these awesome new materials we have, but it also gave us climate change, which we're still struggling with. And the latest kid on the block among the sciences to really impact society is computer science, of course, going from being more of a gimmick to being something which impacts us really quite dramatically today, manipulating us into filter bubbles where we start hating each other, increasing suicide and anorexia among teenage girls, you name it, or being used to kill people in new ways with slaughterbots. And uh, as many people who you undoubtedly have had on your podcast before have already mentioned, uh, you know, this is just the first sort of warning signs that this is something which is either going to be the worst thing ever to happen to humanity or or the best. And and then finally, what does media have to do with any of this? You, you know, well, I, I talked about steering. We we want as humans to be asking ourselves not just how should we make our tech as powerful as possible, but we want to ask. What's our destination? What are we trying to do with this? You know, my friend Jan Tallinn likes to make this really great metaphor with rockets, that you don't just focus on building a rocket that's really powerful without also figuring out how to steer it and think hard about where you want to go with it, right? And um, how do we do this? We, one of the key things is we have to be able to get a good understanding of where we are right now and how the world actually is. If you try to live your life wearing earplugs and noise canceling headphones and um, your eyes covered, you know, it's a lot harder when you just don't get reliable information about the world. It's even worse if you're wearing these headphones that aren't noise canceling and some, some person who doesn't like you keeps telling you about what's actually out there and they're lying to you to just make you fall down as much as possible on candid camera or whatever, right? And sadly, in many ways, that's what the media ecosystem, I feel, is doing to our species today so much of what we find out about the world isn't actually the way the world is but it's the way certain powerful entities in the world want us to think the world is this this idea that uh, people try to uh, manipulate us with, with biased reporting is of course as old as civilization itself I'm from Sweden. I grew up in Sweden, for example. And I'm, you know, if you go, if you were to find out a bit of what, what people were told about the news situation in Sweden from the king's uh, guards or whatever, <laughs> you know, 500 years ago, you, they would be told that the king is great and it's super awesome that we get to pay all these taxes to the king so that he can go and invade Ukraine. Sweden actually invaded Ukraine and got completely crushed in the city of Poltava once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but they were told that this was great, you know, and that's why people went along with it. So that's not new at all. But what is new is the, how, how machine learning plays into this, where now any kind of propaganda and manipulation can be scaled up so dramatically that it starts to really shape and affect society. And as an effective altruist, I think uh, it's really important to not just sit and optimize, you know, given what we currently believe the truth to be, but to also put a lot of effort into actually figuring out what the truth is so we make sure we're steering in the right direction. 
So that's that's why sort of how I see this all fit together. I've been fascinated by big questions. I'm I'm very optimistic by nature, feeling that we have so much potential, and I would like to do what I can to help us seize that potential rather than just squander it. Yeah. So to, so to map out the conversation a little bit, uh, you mentioned a lot of different issues there. We've fortunately over the last year or two had quite a lot of episodes on climate change and uh, nu- nuclear weapons, threat of nuclear war, as well as biosecurity and pandemics, obviously. So I think we mostly won't focus on those, uh, even though you've had a hand in a bunch of projects on on those different problems. Uh, but actually, we, we almost haven't done an episode focused on artificial intelligence in, I guess it's like nine, nine or 10 months. And it's an area where an awful lot is happening. So so that's probably going to be a big part of the conversation. Then we'll talk about this uh, this media stuff, which is kind of your your new exciting project, where I think maybe have a different perspective and some different tools that we've, that we've never discussed before. Just before we dive into AI. You listed off so many different problems there, so many different threats to humanity and our threat, threats to our opportunity, I guess, to like really seize the seize the day or seize the universe, you know, take command of of our future and our and our potential. How do you prioritize personally between all of these different issues that you could potentially try to contribute to? It seems like you've maybe made made an active decision to do a little bit in in all of them. I think a very simple, effective altruism approach, where I ask myself. Where will I personally be able to have the most impact per time spent? So that means the upvote for something which is an important issue, which really could make a difference if I succeed, you know, or if someone succeeds. And then multiply that by like, what's the chance that one really could succeed? And, and then also look at like, how, what can I personally do? There are some issues where I'm actually fortunate to have a better opportunity to contribute because it's something I might know a lot about, for example. And that's basically it. And um, just like uh, if you go invest money on the stock market, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. I feel it's the same with, with my time. Sometimes mm. I can be fairly helpful with, with something with a fairly small amount of my time. And then it's diminishing returns from there on. Yeah, I guess, I suppose, yeah, I haven't followed like exactly, exactly how you're contributing to all of these projects over the years. But it seems like a kind of a special source that you sometimes bring is getting things started, connecting people, convincing people that action can actually be taken and, and inspiring them to to do things. You maybe like a founder character that often brings in kind of co-founders and then they can maybe spend 100% of their time specializing in that area and, and keeping it going. Is that is that impression kind of true? Yeah, maybe. I, I think uh, two, <laughs> two weird character traits that I have is one is I tend to be very obsessed about big picture stuff. Hmm. That explains my choice also of, of nerdy academic research topics, right? The two biggest questions I could think of when I was a teenager lying in my hammock was our universe out there and our universe here in our heads, how that works, all the AI stuff. And similarly, if you, if you want to make the world better, look, look, at the, look at it at the systems level. And then the other trait, which also is very defining of me, for better or for worse, I think, is I'm a doer. If people are just sitting around talking about things and talking some more and talking some more, I just feel really eager to just actually start doing something, even if it's a small step in the right direction. I even took that to the point that I made a New Year's resolution to my wife in, uh, on January 1st, 2015, which was that uh, from now on, I was no longer allowed to complain about anything unless I actually put some time into trying to do something about it. It was put up or shut up. Yeah. And that's actually what, what led me to put all this work into starting the Future Life Institute, for instance. I, I spent a lot of time also complaining earlier that people weren't taking AI safety seriously and that it really needed to be more mainstream. And then I suddenly 
caught myself and said, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to complain about this anymore unless I actually put some work into mainstreaming it, which is why we did the first Puerto Rico conference. Yeah, you gotta got to earn your complaining time. Exactly. All right, well, yeah, speak, speaking of AI, let's, let's dive in. Yeah, obviously, a big threat of your work has been, I guess, trying to understand what, what's the potential here, what are, what are the threats here, like how might this AI story play out, what should we, we be doing to prepare? Yeah, that was, uh, I guess, the, the bulk of what you wrote in Life 3.0, being human in, in an age of artificial intelligence, which is, I guess, five years old now. I guess probably you wrote it about uh, six or seven, seven years ago. That book covers a ton of ground, and I don't want to go back over all of it because they're kind of themes that have shown up on the show fairly regularly before. But before we get to talking about where you think we stand today, it would be good to hear a bit about how you think about both the upsides and downsides we're facing as humanity advances what what AI can do. Can you just lead us in? Yeah, so let's start with the upsides because that's the most obvious and exciting. If you look around ourselves today, right, would you rather live in 2022 or during the Stone Age, if you could pick? I think, I think I'd go for today. A, Netflix is a lot better. <laughs> Life expectancy, also a lot better. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things are a lot better. And if you look at why, you'll see that virtually everything you like about civilization today that we didn't have in the Stone Age is the product of intelligence, the product of human intelligence. So it's pretty obvious that if we could amplify our intelligence with artificial intelligence, that we could even make it even more awesome. We could solve all sorts of problems that our human intelligence has been stumped by so far. And uh, if you get a bit more nerdy about it, which I love to do as a physicist, then uh, it's quite obvious that if we really succeed in figuring out what intelligence is and how to build things that are as intelligent as the laws of physics allow, that, you know, then we would shift from suddenly being limited not by what we can figure out to just being limited by the laws of physics. And you can get nerdy on that and realize that it's just so many orders of magnitude more <laughs> in all ways. If you ask how much compute per second you can get, or if you ask how, how possible it is to go travel to other galaxies, or basically any axis you're excited about, we're nowhere near the limits that the laws of physics place, the speed of light that you can't beat, stuff like that. And the secret to unlocking this is through artificial intelligence, right? Now, uh, so that's the upside. Basically, anything you would like to do, which we haven't been smart enough to do yet, cure cancer, eliminate poverty, help people live exciting, inspiring lives, or for that matter, if you would like to help, help life spread throughout our observe, much of our observable universe, any of those things, artificial intelligence has the potential to give them to you. And moreover, you don't have to wait millions of years like in the sci-fi novels. It's quite likely that I believe this, we could get this in our lifetime. So that's the upside. But we also know that every tool we have is a double-edged sword, right? Not just a sword, but take something innocuous like fire, for example. It's great for keeping warm in the winter where you live or for making a nice barbecue, but you can also use it to burn down your neighbor's house. So the technology itself isn't morally good or morally evil. It's a tool and it comes down to what you use it for. Artificial intelligence is no different. And uh, the, the, what is different about AI isn't that it's morally neutral. It's just that it's powerful and it's going to get dramatically more powerful. So of all the technologies that we need to make sure we put to good rather than bad use, AI is the one we need to pay the most attention to. 
I've talked about AI a bunch of the show, I guess just in lots of conversations over the years. It's a very difficult one to know how to explain or message because I, I can't think of almost any other issue where people come at it with just like such strong and completely conflicting views. Yeah. So, so some people just have a very strong attitude that it's going to end well, like AI will come, it's going to be great. It'll be like an extraordinary surprise if things went badly. Uh, it's very hard to persuade them there's a problem. Many other people, their intuition is that this is like a terrifying development. They're horrified. Like this is even before they've kind of, you know, read a book like Superintelligence or something like that. I, it just sounds incredibly unnerving to them. Many of other people who just have a very strong preconception that will never have super really intelligent yeah. machines. I hear that less these days, but 10 years ago. So yeah, I'm always a little bit sure, like what should, what should the second question here be? But uh, I guess the natural one is, what's one way that things could plausibly play out that we might want to steer steer away from first of all sociologically you're spot on there rob people are really all over the place even very educated people and there are these two basic dimensions you outlined first the question of well how soon and will this happen how far will it go where you'll have some people like my former mit colleague professor rodney brooks who says it's not going to happen for 300 years that we'll even get to human level and 100 percent sure and then you have other people which aren't actually most people in the technical community now, I think it's going to happen a lot sooner. And recent polls of AI researchers tend to predict that about you know decades from now, we'll have AI that can do basically all our human jobs better or cheaper than, than, than we can. But that's one axis that's where you can basically classify people from techno-skeptics to think it's never going to work to techno-optimists. And then on the other axis, it's do they think this is going to suck or going to be great? <laughs> where maybe it actually says more about people's personality traits and whether, than, than anything scientific, really, where they land on that. Some people tend to be kind of hopeful and optimistic about everything. Some people are more prone to wishful thinking than others. Yeah. If we take the first one, the question of what will actually happen, I think a very common misconception, especially among non-scientists, is that intelligence is something mysterious, that can only exist inside of biological organisms like human beings. And uh, if we've learned anything from physics, it's that, uh, no, intelligence is about information processing. And it really doesn't matter whether the information is processed by a carbon atom, by carbon atoms in neurons, in brains, in people, or by silicon atoms in some GPU somewhere. It's the information processing itself that matters. It, it's this substrate independent nature of information processing that doesn't matter whether it's a Mac or a PC you're running it on or a Linux box, or for that matter, what the CPU manufacturer is, or even whether it's biological or silicon based that matters. It's just the, the information processing that matters. That's really been the number one core idea, I would say, that's, that's caused the revolution in AI, that you can keep swapping yeah. up out your hardware and using the same algorithms. Once you, once you accept that, that you and I are blobs of quarks and electrons that happen to be arranged in a way such that they can process information well, it's pretty obvious that unless you have way more hubris than I do, you know, that there, we are not the most optimized quark blobs possible for information processing. Just duh, of course not, you know. Yeah, that'd be quite a coincidence. Yes. And then the question is just, well, okay. Of course, it's possible, but the question then is how long will it take for us to figure out how to do it? A second fallacy, I think, that makes people underestimate the future progress is they think that before we can build machines that are smarter than us, we have to figure out how our intelligence works. And that's just wrong. Just think about airplanes, right? When was the last time you visited the U.S.? 
Oh, uh, it's actually been a while. It's been a couple of years now. So when you came over to the US, do you remember if did you cross the Atlantic in a mechanical flying bird or in some other kind <laughs> no, of machine? I, no, I think I came across in a plane rather than an ornithopter. <laughs> okay. There's an awesome TED Talk that anyone listening to this should Google about how they actually built the flying bird. Yeah. But it took 100 years longer to figure out how birds fly than to build something, another kind of machine that could fly even faster than birds, right? It just turned out that the reason bird flight was so complicated was because birds, evolution optimized birds not just to fly, but it, it kind of it had, it had all these other weird constraints. It had to be a flying machine that could self-assemble. Boeing and Airbus don't care about that constraint, right? Yeah has to be able to self-repair. And you have to be able to build the flying machine out of only a very small subset of atoms that happen to be very abundant in nature, like carbon and oxygen, nitrogen, and so on. And it also has very, very tight constraints on its energy budget because a lot of animals starve to death, right? Your brain can do all this great stuff on 25 watts. You know, It's obviously much more optimized for that than your laptop is. Once you let go of all these these evolutionary constraints which we don't have as engineers it turns out there are much easier ways of building flying machines and i'm equally i'm quite confident that there are also much easier ways of building machines with human level intelligence than than the one we have in our head yeah it's cool to look at do some neuroscience and i've done a little written some neuroscience papers steal some cool ideas from how the brain does stuff for inspiration even the whole idea of an artificial neural network of course came from looking at brains and seeing that they have neural networks inside but uh, no, we, we, we're told the, the first time we're going to figure out really how our brain works is when we first build artificial general intelligence, and then it helps us figure out how the brain works. Or at least, uh, at least probably. <laughs> is my guess. It's a, that's a, it's a very likely way to go. Yeah. yeah. I guess, so that's one reason to think that we shouldn't expect that the brain is mysterious and that we're not going to be able to design machines that can do the same thing or extremely similar things, like long before we can potentially reverse engineer completely how that, how the brain works. But what's... What's maybe the most likely way for that to not pan out as well as we hope? Well, before talking about future problems, let's just look at the problems that have already been caused by artificial intelligence. So have you noticed in England that that people seem to hate each other a lot more now than 10 years ago? You know, I wish I could say yes, because that'd be very convenient for this interview. But uh, maybe I just don't talk to enough English people. But uh, I find people are pretty, pretty nice. But maybe I'm just very good at selecting, selecting my friends. Could it be that you're, in, you're living in a bubble of people who all get along? That's, well, that, that's what I am for. <laughs> so I think it's working. It's like but, if you, uh, you, should, you can test this hypothesis. Just go ask all your friend, circle of friends if they voted for Brexit or against Brexit, for example. And I suspect mm. it won't be representative of the British population as a whole. No, no, I suspect not. Which is why you guys get along great with it, amongst each other, right? But but we've definitely have seen a lot in, uh, even more so in the U.S. I would say than in in the U.K. is that a society where people had more of a shared understanding of the truth that they could kind of agree on. Yeah, this is kind of what's going on. It's now fragmented into people living in these different parallel universes where their understanding of reality is completely different. These filter bubbles. Mm. And if you ask yourself, what caused this? It's easy to dismiss it and say, oh, it's just because politician X, it's it's his fault or whatever. But I think that's way too glib. It's really important when you see a problem to actually do a proper diagnosis, right? You don't want to go to the doctor and just be told that your problem is that you have a headache. 
and take this pill, you know, you would like to know what's causing it. Hmm. Is it COVID-19 or is it pneumonia or what? And if you try to diagnose why we have so much more fragmentation of our Western societies into different groups that can hardly talk to each other anymore, I think it's pretty obvious that the explanation cannot be just that some opportunistic politician came along because we've had those since time immemorial, as long as there were politicians. If you go read ancient Roman history, they were just as unscrupulous. You can read Machiavelli. That's not new. What is new is the internet and machine learning. So it's technology. And um, in particular, social media companies have deployed some of the most powerful optimization algorithms so far using machine learning to actually influence people's behavior. They came at it with a goal that you might think is fairly harmless, uh, if you're into capitalism, they were just trying to increase the profit for their company, trying to figure out what to show people to make them watch, watch as many ads as possible, which is called engagement right, in, in marketing speech. But what they hadn't realized was that the machine learning algorithm was so smart that it would figure out how to do this way better than they thought in ways that actually caused a lot of harm. It turned out that the best way to keep people glued to their screens was to really piss them off and show them all sorts of things that made them really, really angry. And whether they were true or false was completely irrelevant to the algorithm as long as they kept clicking and kept watching the ads, right? And the algorithms also discovered that actually false information often spread faster than true information. And, and, um, and then gradually other powerful entities noticed how effective this was and started throwing their money into making people believe in their truths rather than other people's truths, etc. And this is already a very real problem in, in a country like the UK, we had Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and doing things which were pretty instrumental to Brexit. And you might feel that, that um, that's not perhaps such a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But if you go to Kenya, for example, these sort of phenomena actually caused a lot of people to get killed in really horrible riots there. And uh, you can it, it's not hard to imagine the future wars starting over things like this, etc. So this is this is one example of how machine learning itself has caused very real social harm. You even see it in smaller scales, which aren't existential risks, but that cause a lot of suffering. Like there's a much higher rate of um, anorexia now among teenage girls in the United States, which has been very directly linked to what they get shown on their social media. And uh, another, another example, just to pick, I want to just mention three examples of how machine learning is already causing harm in society. So yeah. people don't come away from this thinking that we're just sitting here. <laughs> freaking out about some future which might not happen. Second one is is in warfare. So it, it used to be that uh, it was a very honored tradition in, in the military that humans should take responsibility for things. You can't just be in the British Army and decide to go shoot a bunch of people because you felt like it. They will ask, who ordered you this, who, to do this, and who is responsible? But uh, there was the United Nations report that came out showing that last year, for the first time, we had the, these slaughter bots in Libya that had been sold to one of the warring parties there by a Turkish company that actually hunted down humans and killed them because the machines decided that they were bad guys. This is very different from the drone warfare that's mostly on the news now with Ukraine, for example, where there's a human looking at cameras and deciding what to do. It's, it's where you actually delegated to the machine, just go figure out who's a bad guy and then kill them. Do, do you know on what, what kind of basis the drones are making those decisions? That was ultimately proprietary information from the company that they chose not to release. Wow. Okay. 
I didn't know that that was already a thing. And, and uh, so far, of course, the relatively few people have been killed by this. And as, as usual, it tends to be peop- more vulnerable people in, in uh, developing countries who get screwed first. But it's not hard to imagine that uh, this is something that could escalate enormously. You know, we don't generally like to have weapons of mass destruction where very few can kill very many because it's very destabilizing, right? Hmm. And um, these sort of slaughterbots, if you can mass produce them and for the cost of an iPhone each one, and you can buy, you know, you can buy a million of them for a few hundred million dollars, would mean that one person in principle could then go off and kill a million people and you might think oh it's fine because we can program these to only be ethical and only kill the good guys or whatever if you don't have any other moral qualms but who's to say what ethics you put into it well the owner says that right so if if the owner of them decides that the ethical thing to do is to kill everybody of a certain ethnic group for example then that's what these machines will go off and do and i think this kind of weapon of mass destruction would be much more harmful to the future of humanity than any of the ones we've had before, because precisely because it uh, it gives such outsized power to a very tiny group of people, and it's a sort of like in contrast to other conflicts where we've had a lot of people do bad things. There were often officers or some soldiers who refused to follow orders or assassinated the dictator or whatever. These machines are the ultimate. Adolf Eichmann on steroids, right? Who have been programmed to be just completely loyal. So that's a, that's a, also something which, w- when we started warning about this, so we worked with Stuart Russell, for example, to make this video called Slaughterbots a few years ago, which actually has <laughs> racked up uh, like almost a hundred million views. Now, some people accused us of of this being completely unrealistic and hyperbole. And yeah. um, now they've stopped saying that because they've they've been reading in the newspaper that it's already happened. So that's something that's here. The third one is income inequality. No, in um, I haven't looked specifically at the UK income inequality recently, but in, in most Western countries, it's gone up a lot. And uh, some um, populist politicians like to blame the Chinese or the Mexicans for this. Others like to blame some political party for this. But um, many of my economist friends argue that maybe the number one cause is actually information technology itself. It's pretty obvious if you replace human workers by machines that the the money that was previously paid in salaries to humans for doing the work will now get paid to the owners of the machines who were normally richer to start with. So that drives inequality. And a very simple example to look at is if you just compare, for example, Ford with Facebook. So Ford has way more employees and a much smaller market cap than Facebook. Last time I checked, I think Facebook has about 100 times as much market cap per employee as Ford does. So Facebook is a more future kind of company. More companies will become Facebook-like, right, where much of the value is added by the ML than Ford is. And I think unless we take some corrective action here, what's going to by default happen is just that an ever smaller fraction of the humans on Earth will control an ever larger fraction of the wealth. And you might think that's fine because the rising tide raises all boats. But if you actually just look at the absolute income corrected for inflation, you see that like Americans without a college degree have often gotten poorer than, than they were even 40 years ago. So, that, so a lot of the anger that's been fueling certain politicians, uh, helping them get elected, is actually, I believe, driven by, by this. 
that people feel people notice something which is actually real which is that they're getting kind of screwed by society yeah they're not uh not sure what the future holds for them i'm a i'm a little bit skeptical of the of the first one there about algorithms driving social division but maybe we can go back to the that in the later section about mm-hmm. uh, about media yeah i would love um, to I'm slightly worried that that one's been uh yeah been been overhyped uh-huh. but yeah the, the the other two either definitely are problems today or uh, or will be problems in future and I, and certainly i think algorithms could be used to drive social division the uh, question maybe it's just uh whether they have been the main mm-hmm. corporate over, over the last few years Maybe let's push forward a little bit in time from the kind of issues that we're facing in the in the here and now to you know what issues might we face with intelligence systems that are much more impressive than what we have now in ten or twenty or thirty years time. Would, would that look significantly different? Absolutely. So it's important to not conflate artificial general intelligence or, or stuff close to it, you know, which can start doing an ever larger fraction of human jobs from what um, Nick Bostrom and others would call superintelligence. So if we start. With the former here, you know, machine learning keeps getting better and better. We get self-driving cars that are great, and we get all sorts of other jobs being increasingly complemented, augmented, and replaced by ML. Even before we get to the point where we have artificial general intelligence, which can just do all our jobs, some pretty spectacular changes are going to happen in society. It could be great in that we might just produce this abundance of services and goods that can be shared so that everybody gets better off. Or it could kind of go to hell in the handbasket by causing an incredible power concentration, which is ultimately harmful for humanity as a whole. If, if you're not worried about this, then just take a moment and, and think, ask you, think about your least favorite political leader on the planet. Don't tell me who it is, but just close your eyes and like imagine the face of that person, okay? And now just imagine the day will be in charge of whatever company or organization has the best AI going forward as it gets ever better and gradually become in charge of the entire planet through that, right? How does that make you feel? Great or less so? <laughs> less, less so. I mean, it's still not, we're not talking about the AI itself, the machine taking over. Yeah. It's still this person in charge. It seems suboptimal. But, I, but you don't look too excited. No, <laughs> I, would, I would not be psyched by that. Yeah, so, so that's, that's the challenge then. Uh, we can already see slow trends in that direction. Just look at the stock market. You know, who were the what were the largest companies in the U.S. For example, ten years ago, there were oil companies and this and that and the other thing. Now, all the largest companies are on the S and P 500 are tech companies, and that's never going to be undone. Tech companies are gradually going to continue consolidating, growing, and eat up more and more of the lunch of the other companies, and be, become ever more dominant. And those who control them, therefore, you know, get ever more power. So the big watershed there, I think, is if we as a society... I personally am a big democracy fan. I, I love uh, Winston Churchill's uh, quip there that democracy is a terrible system of government, but it's still better, <laughs> except for all the, the other ones. system of government apart from all of the others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if you if believe in the democratic ideal, the, the, the solution is obviously to figure out a way of making this ever-growing power that comes from having this tech be in the hands of, of people, people of Earth, so that everybody gets better off. It's very easy in principle to take an ever-growing pie and divide it up in such a way that everyone gets better off and nobody gets seriously screwed over, right? But that's not what happens by default, right? That's not what's been happening since around, yeah, in, in recent decades, right? The poorest Americans have been getting actually poorer rather than richer. And the uh, it's an open question, I think, of how to deal with this. This is not the question we should go blame our AI research friends 
for not having solved by themselves. It's a question economists, political scientists, and everybody else has to get in on and think about how we structure our society to make sure that this great abundance ultimately gets controlled by in a, in a way that it benefits us all. The, uh, the kind of tools that already have caused some problems that I mentioned, uh, for example, weapons that can give an outsized power to very few or, or machine learning tools that can, through media and social media, let very few control very many. Those obviously have, that has to be part of the conversation we have, how we make sure that those tools also don't get deployed in harmful ways so that we get this democratically prosperous future that I'm, I'm hoping for. And then, then, now that we talked about that, suppose we get to artificial general intelligence. Now we have machines that can basically do all our jobs for us. It can either be great in that they just produce everything we need and we can have fun all day long and be taking it. Or, yeah, let's, let's, let's go with that happy scenario for a moment. This is clearly not necessarily a stable situation, though. Sure. So Irving J. Good articulated this very nicely way, way, way back by just pointing out that if, if you have machines that can do all jobs as well as humans, that includes the job, like my job, your job, it includes the job of AI development, which means that after that, the typical R&D cycle to make the next generation AI system that's twice as good or whatever, it might not take Could speed up a lot. two years like it does or whatever it takes for humans. It might take two weeks or two days or two hours or two minutes. It can speed up a lot. And then the new... 2.0 version can similarly make the 3.0 version and the 4.0 version, and you get this exponential growth. Whenever you have anything that just keeps doubling at regular intervals, that's what we call an explosion. And if it's the number of people that are doubling, we call it a population explosion. If it's the number of neutrons in a hydrogen bomb, we call it a nuclear explosion. So it's very appropriate to call this, if it's the intelligence that keeps doubling, an intelligence explosion. Yeah. And if that happens... The most natural place for that to stop is is when it just bumps up against the laws of physics and you just can't get any better, which, as we talked about in the beginning, is just so many orders of magnitude above human intelligence that that these intelligent machines will seem completely godlike to us. Yeah, although I suppose, yeah, it's, it's not strictly necessary that the things have to go that far. So you, you could imagine a situation where you do create AI systems that are better than humans at programming AI systems and, in, and improving them. So they're better ML researchers. And so they, they turn their, their computing power to, towards doing that. However, the problem of programming the machines better to be more intelligent gets harder, the closer to optimal that they are. And so even though they're getting better at the task as they get smarter, that the task on the margin is getting a bunch harder. And so perhaps the explosion is more gradual or alternatively it could kind of level off at some point or at least like slow down for some stages. However, as long as it's as long as they're leveling off or continuing to grow to a point that's like substantially above human level, then there's a, there's a lot of potentially interesting things that, that could happen, even if you're not hitting some like actual <laughs> limit set by physics. Absolutely. I, I confessed to you earlier that I like betting. <laughs> uh, everybody's entitled to at least one vice, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm absolutely not betting 100% that we are going to get super intelligence. But what I am saying is, first of all, it's a possibility we need to take seriously. It's not science, crazy, impossible science fiction. And second, um, if you do get into betting, at the, at the Asilomar conference in 2017, where we had benefit of having many of the leaders, both from AI industry and um, AI academia, I actually asked the panel full of folks, you can see it on YouTube, if they think we are going to get superintelligence. Demis Hassabis, the CEO of Google DeepMind, was there. He said, yes. We had a bunch of AI professors who were there and said, yes, etc. 
In fact, everybody on the panel more or less said yes. So that doesn't tell us it is going to happen. It just tells us that we have to There's take no, it seriously like as a argument. possibility. Yeah, we can't yeah. just dismiss it out of hand. And, and um, if you like to think big, you, you might find this to be actually a very inspiring idea. Maybe this could be like the next stage in the development of life in our universe. You can, you can sort of ultimately unlock this intelligence inherent in our universe that just never really come out before and put it to all these awesome uses. But um, on the other hand, as we talked about earlier, every technology is a double-edged sword. So if you can screw up a little bit with a fire or with a knife, <laughs> you can screw up. There's a lot more potential for screwing up in a very big way with, with super intelligence. And Nick, Nick Boostrom's book, for example, is full of examples of that. So I don't want to conflate those, those two things with one another, but it's not too soon. We, we kind of have to, it's kind of like if you're playing chess, you have to pay attention to your next move and be thinking two moves ahead but you also need to at the same time have a little bit of a strategic look ahead much further and that's what we need to do now also we we need to make sure that social media doesn't get all out of control and we don't have horrible income inequality and record democracy blah blah and whatever but we also have to keep thinking about this because the situation today let's face it is that there is so much money to be made by in further improving the powerful ai systems we have right now that there's a huge commercial gradient, commercial pressure to do it more. And all yeah. the, the, the top students at MIT want to study it and investors want to invest in it. The amount of money that's going into attracting talent and just buying computing power for, for this purpose, I mean, it has, it has exploded. We, we can link to some people who have looked into this. But, yeah. uh, but like, I mean, the amount of compute going into it has just been increasing orders of magnitude over, over, over the last five, 10 years. Exactly. So, so we are in a situation where... Short of some other kind of cataclysm that we actually accidentally mess ourselves up with, an, with a, I mean, a nuclear war that causes nuclear winter or, or someone 3D prints some virus that kills everybody or whatever. Short of something like that, I would definitely put most of my money on that we are going to get to artificial general intelligence and a fair bit beyond it in our lifetime. That would be my bet. And it's, which, So you might think, okay, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You know, if it happens in, in a few decades... Then we figure out how to make it safe. But that's clearly too late to think about it because the one thing we've definitely learned from AI safety research so far is that it's hard, yeah, <laughs> really hard. And it might take decades to, to actually solve this, which means we should start now, right? Not the night before some, some folks on too much Red Bull switch it on. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just add one more thing for counter arguments? Yeah, yeah, go for it. No, it's remarkable how often people conflate the claim that something bad might happen with the claim that something bad is guaranteed to happen. You know, those are logically very distinct statements, right? And to make the case for doing AI safety research and worrying a bit, you only need to believe that it might happen with a reasonable chance and have big impact, right? For sure. Yeah, I think that is definitely, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't hear a lot of these kind of uh, dodgy counter arguments uh, much, much these days, because just as AI has become so much more real and people can see what it can do, I, I feel like it's a lot more buy-in from, from a lot more people to be interested in, in all kinds of different angles on, of, of figuring out how society is going to deal with this. But uh, sometimes people, I guess 10 or 20 years ago, they would offer some counter argument for thinking that maybe the risk posed by AI is less than, than I might have been suggesting, and they feel like their job is done, and like, now we should just do nothing about it. And I'm like, no, like... We should definitely be thinking about mm -hmm. this and preparing for it and taking precautions unless we're absolutely sure that it's going to be fine. And we absolutely cannot be absolutely sure that it's fine because we have no idea when it's going to come or how it's going to play out. Exactly. Because the future is very hard to predict. 
Yeah. Anyway, I think let's let's maybe push on from this kind of background understanding of, of AI as a, as, as a problem. For people who are interested to uh, to get more of that, of course, they could read your book, Life 3.0. Um, they might also want to go back in the in the 80,000 Hours podcast archives to probably the best episode, actually, is episode 92, Brian Christian on the alignment problem, where he talks about his his book, The Alignment Problem. But yeah, for people who'd like maybe a bit more of a, of a skeptical take and want to hear some counter arguments, there's episode 81, uh, Ben Garfinkel on scrutinizing classic AI risk arguments. Pushing on, um, yeah, in, in the book Life 3.0, which I read this week, you uh, you gave yourself a lot of creative license to consider really a very wide range of possible futures, both good and bad, that that, that could await us. Uh, you, you imagined us staying on Earth as well as spreading through space at virtually the speed of light. You imagined a world where every individual has near unlimited technology and other worlds where we're kind of all laboring under the yoke of a totalitarian state that we can't get rid of. You thought about worlds where we might try to maximize pleasure and other ones where we might try to you know preserve nature and pursue other values. You had uh, some scenarios where, you know, one AI or one group comes to dominate everything and others where there's tons of different AI systems and none particularly stands out. I've read some reviews of the, of the book on, on Goodreads and it seemed like this was maybe the aspect of the book that most divided readers. Some some absolutely love this sort of exploration and others ripped into it as kind of idle and un, unhelpful speculation. I'm more in the former camp, as people might imagine. But yeah, what was your experience trying to get people, because you not only did all of this, but you really encouraged people to go away and think for themselves and even write up, like, what would they like the future to look like out of all of these imaginable, imaginable futures? What, what kind of experience did you have trying to get people to think more seriously about ideal worlds that, that they might want to help create? It's a it's a great great question. You know, this uh, approach of just encouraging people to think about the positive future they wanted is very inspired by the rest of my life. You know, I spent so much time giving career advice to students who walk into my office, and you know, through eighty thousand hours, you have you know you have a lot of experience with this. And uh, the first thing I ask is always, you know, what is the future that you are excited about, right? And if all she can say is, oh, maybe I'll have ca- get cancer, maybe I'll get run over by bus, <laughs> maybe I'll get murdered, you know, terrible strategy for career planning, right? If you, all you do is make lists of everything that can go wrong, you're just going to end up a paranoid hypochondriac. And it's not even going to improve your odds, right? Instead, I want I want to see fire in her eyes. I want her to be say like, this, you know, this is where I want to be in the future. And then we can talk about the obstacles that have to be circumvented, you know, to get there. And this is what we need to do as a society also. And then, you know, you, you go to the movies and watch some some film about the future and it's dystopian. Almost every time it's dystopian. Or you read something in the news about what people are talking about the future, one crisis, disaster after another, right? So I think we as a species are making exactly the same mistake that we would find it ridiculous if, if young people made when we were giving them career advice, right? That's why I, I, I put this in the book. And I also think it's important that this job of articulating and inspiring positive vision it's not something we can just delegate to tech nerds, you know, like me. People who know how to train a neural network and PyTorch don't have any, that doesn't give them any particular qualifications in human psychology to figure out what makes people truly happy. Yeah. We want everybody in on this one and talking about the destination that we're aiming for. And that's also a key reason I wrote the book. I wanted people to take seriously that there are all these different possibilities and start having conversations with their friends about what they would like a day in, in their future life to be like. 
rather than just wait for some um, to see some commercial that told them how it was supposed to be. That's the way we become masters of our own destiny. We figure out where we want to go and then we steer in that direction. Yeah. I think this has actually been shifting over my lifetime, but, but I've had this impression that, yeah, I, I kind of background view that people have is that, you know, serious people, they think about like slightly changing tax rates and what implications that's going to have for society. And it's like unserious people who think about such big picture issues as like, what do we want the world to look like in a hundred years or a thousand years? Did you have any luck kind of getting maybe more buy-in for thinking at that scale among people who have, you know, you know important people who have serious jobs? No, no, actually. No. I, I have to say, <laughs> this is a, eat the humble pie here. I find basically no correlation between people's level of uh, education or academic credentials and how good they are at how um, prone they are to big picture thinking or for that matter to how nice they are. I, there are some people who have a very strong moral compass and some that don't. There are some people who are very altruistic, uh, some people who are very egoistic, some even psychopathic. I don't really, haven't really in my life seen any correlation between that and like how many PhDs they have or professorships. So sometimes you'll find someone like Freeman Dyson, for example, uh, amazing physics professor, great hero of mine who, who loved to think super big picture. He wrote the first really scientific book about the distant future of our universe. I mentioned him a lot in, in my book, some of the f- things he concluded. On the other hand, uh, you find a lot of equally super talented Nobel laureates in physics who just want to go optimize this little uh, machine here to work any corner of the universe a bit better and and actually pride themselves one one professor i i won't name him we were already discussing some of the big picture things about what does this what does quantum mechanics really mean for the nature of reality he's like ah I don't care about that and I'm proud that I don't care about it because I'm a tinkerer and I, I just want to think about how to build little things. And another, another moment like that that really stuck with me was uh, I gave a talk at this conference. Actually, I was there because we had built a radio telescope to make the lar- try to make the largest 3D map of our universe in 3D. And some other people who were there were building the world's largest radars to track their nuclear weapons targeting. And uh, you would think someone who's constantly working on nuclear weapons all day day long and thinking about where the hydrogen bombs are going to go would at least be kind of interested in, like, where are they going to land, you know, and is my, how does my work, what's the social impact of my work, you know, how can I make sure that they, no, they were just bragging about, oh, my, my radar is bigger than your radar. Oh, and let me tell you how big my radar is. So so you, you, you really see... Someone who knows more about the psychology or evolutionary psychology than I do can maybe explain why that is. But it, I get the sense that some combination of nature and nurture <laughs> determines where people are on this spectrum from having a strong moral compass to not and from thinking about the big picture consequences of their actions and not. And it really has very little to do with um, education or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is tendency that really worries me. I I think one cause is that in domains that are extremely competitive, whereas like most people get weeded out, people who are interested in spending too much time like studying the classics or thinking about moral philosophy, like and musing about like, who am I and what's my place in the universe, rather than just spending all of their time tinkering with machines and like focusing on their like very special area of science and tech or getting elected and, you know, smooching with the white people. People who like want to take some of their time and, and spend it on those broader issues that are not providing them a competitive advantage with, within their field tend to get weeded out. And so maybe at like the 
you know, in order to win the Nobel Prize, you just don't have time to think about the nature of reality, uh, potentially. Well, yes and no. Uh, just to cheer up some listeners to this podcast who, who want to go into science and think about the big picture so they don't think they're going to be automatically weeded out. Can I give a counterexample also to this? Absolutely. Albert Einstein. Why was it that he was one of the most impactful physicists ultimately of all time? Was it because he was better at math? No, it wasn't. In fact, you can see I have behind me on, on the wall here some of his most famous equations. And he wasn't even the first person to write down some of the key equations that he got famous for. They weren't that hard. But he was the only one who had this obsession about the big picture and kept asking, well, what does this mean exactly? This, what does it mean that, that you know, when, when you're going at this speed that looks like the time is running at a different rate, you know, other people just dismiss this as stupid philosophy and whatever. And, but he, he was obsessed about precisely the big picture question. And it was because of that that he made his breakthroughs. Yeah. That he, he saw the big picture that others had failed to see. I, I think this, so this is actually a, a very important trait for some of the greatest scientific discoveries. Also, some of the most successful business people, I think, have been successful because they were able to see lo- the bigger picture and see longer term than others. So you're right. In some situations, maybe winning a lot of elections, <laughs> not seeing yeah. the big picture might help. Unfortunately, maybe that says something <laughs> about why we get the politicians we do. But I don't want to disappoint those who listen. I, I think if, if someone listening to this is obsessed about the big picture, Nurture that is what I say, and you're going to have much more positive impact as a result. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely, definitely agree. That and it's even important. even yeah. in your personal happiness in your life, mm. right? If you're just constantly doing what you're told and learning to do things ten percent faster, that's not the way you're going to end up living the most happy and fulfilling life. To do that, you need to see the big picture in your own life also, and see what is it that really makes me happy. What are the if I think out of the box. What could I do to have an even more interesting life? Um, I think those are traits that we both are both actually very helpful in our personal lives for ourselves and also for safeguarding a good future for humanity and and life itself and the cosmos. Yeah. So we're recording this in May 2022, pretty soon after the release of DALI, I think it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. by OpenAI. It's this ML system that can consistently draw really beautiful and usually appropriate images based on a pretty short description of what the user wants. If I was a professional illustrator, I think I'd be uh, pretty worried about losing work to AIs like this. Or I suppose as uh, someone who's not an illustrator, I'm mostly just very excited to have a lot more art around me, <laughs> given given how much cheaper it's going to be to create, uh, create beautiful designs mm-hmm. in future. In a different domain, there's Google Pathways language model, uh, acronym is PALM, which has, I think, I think a record number of parameters for 540 billion parameters and seems to be able to frequently answer really complex questions pretty sensibly and, you know, even explain jokes, yep. frankly, a bunch better than, better than I'd be able to. There's this other language model, GPT-3, seems to be able to write simple computer programs based on a short description of what the user wants to do and be able to do that a decent fraction of the time well. Prediction platforms like Metaculous have seen their aggregate forecasts for when we're going to first see a general AI that meets various kind of natural capability benchmarks. Uh, they've seen those forecasts fall by like five to 10 years just over the last month or so. Yeah. On a personal level, I am kind of freaking out because it seems like we are maybe just getting shockingly close to AI systems understanding the world we live in in some intuitive way and being able to make 
logical inferences that seem an awful lot like the way that I do logical inferences. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't really see why if we can produce language models like this now, we might not have language models that can speak more or less in a way that's indistinguishable from people Mm -hmm. in in a few years. I mean, people talk about a few decades, but why not a few years? Um, You know, or further, you know, why won't we be able to make AI systems that can act on that understanding in the world to achieve goals relatively soon? Uh, do, Do you have a take or a personal view on kind of how striking we should find all of this recent progress in AI? I think it's very striking. It's it's uh, it's part of a of a very striking trend of of acceleration of, of progress. When we when we did the Puerto Rico meeting in in 2015, January 2015, right? That was a time when even talking about the things that you've been asking me about now was generally considered so disrespectable <laughs> that you would you would, wouldn't do it except with trusted friends in a bar and. We, people who who warned about it or even talked too much about artificial general intelligence being possible were often dismissed as just crazy philosophers. That's why we put so much effort into trying to just mainstream the issue and bring together people who were both building the stuff and people who were worried about the stuff to get to talk to each other and see that and start working together to get them into the, not just making them powerful, but making them safe. And I brought this up because that was... Um, that was 2015. So we did a poll then, right, seven years ago, asking people to predict when various things were going to happen. And then we've been tracking year after year similar polls. And it's interesting to see that so many other things are happening faster than even the world experts predicted seven years ago. You mentioned the great assortment of, of language models and amazing systems that have just come out very recently. I can, you can also add to that the Gato system that DeepMind just put out, which can where one single system can do over 200 different kind of tasks from playing computer games to actually moving a robot arm etc and um, this is obviously part of a of just ongoing trend what this tells me i think is that first of all yeah that we were definitely right seven years ago when we when we took took this seriously as something that wasn't science fiction because a whole bunch of the things that some people that some of the real skeptics then thought would maybe never happen, have already happened. And also, we've learned a very interesting thing about how it's happening. Because even as recently as seven years ago, you could definitely have argued that in order to get this performance that we have now, where you can just, for example, ask for a picture of an armchair that looks like an avocado and then get something as cool as what Dali made, or, or have those logical reasoning things from Palm, maybe for one of the reader, for the listeners who haven't read through the nerd paper, we could just mention an example. So there's this text, oh, I'm going to go to this mountain with the faces on it. And uh, what is the capital of the state to the east of the state that that's in? And it gives the correct answer. Right. And back even as recently as seven years ago, I think a lot of AI researchers would have said that that's impossible to do unless you have built, developed some fundamental new breakthroughs in, in logic-based systems, having some super, really clever sort of internal knowledge representation, or you, that you would really need to build a lot of new tools. And instead, what we've seen is it wasn't actually necessary. People have they've built these gigantic black boxes. You basically take a bunch of simulated neurons like we have in our brain. Basically, you can think of them as wires, as ascending voltages to each other and in a certain way and and then you you can you have a bunch of knobs which are called parameters which you can tweak affecting how the different neurons affect one another and then you have some definition of what good performance means like maybe answering a lot of questions correctly and then you 
it just becomes a problem of tweaking all these knobs to get the best performance, which we call training. And you can tell the computer what it means to be good, right? And then it can keep tweaking these knobs until health, which is in computer science is called an optimization problem. And that's basically that very simple thing with some fairly simple architectures has gotten us all the way here. Yeah, there have been a few a few technical innovations. There's an architecture called transformers, which is a particular way of connecting the neurons together, whatever. But it's actually pretty simple. And then it just it's just turned out that when you just kept adding more and more data and more and more compute, it became able to do all of these sorts of things. And frankly, this is to me, <laughs> to me the worst case scenario we're on right now, the one I had hoped wouldn't happen. I had hoped that it was going to be harder to get here, so that it would take longer, so we would have more time to do some AI safety. And I also hoped that uh, the way we would ultimately get here would be a way where we had more insight into how the system actually worked so that we could trust it more because we understood it. And instead, what we're faced with is these humongous black boxes, you know, with 200 billion knobs on them and magically does this stuff. A very poor understanding of how it works. And and then we have this, and it turned out to be easy enough to do it now that every every company and everyone and, and their uncle is doing their own and, and there's a lot of money to be made. And it's sort of, it's hard to envision a situation where we would just as a species decide to stop for a little bit and, and figure out how to make them safe. So this is this is what I think we, we learn here. In summary, both that uh, at least getting to subhuman intelligence, kind of what we have now, ended up being easier than um, I think a lot of people had thought. And unfortunately, it didn't require switching to a more interpretable and understandable architecture either. Just make the black box bigger. More knobs. Yeah. You know, my MIT AI safety research that we do is exactly focused on opening up a black box. It's, this is often called interpretability in the community, but I like to call it intelligible intelligence because it's kind of, you want to make it sort of interpretable on steroids. Like the, the most extreme example would be if you, if you think about how humans, human intelligence works, right? Galileo, for example, if his, if his dad threw him an apple, he would be able to catch it. He had a neural network in his head, which had gradually learned to figure out the shape in which apples fly under the influence of gravity, right? And then when he got older, he realized, wait a minute, all apples, all things always go in the same shape. This, this thing we call the parabola, you can write a, write a math equation for it, y equals x squared. And, and, and he started writing down these physics laws. And now all of a sudden, he, he had taken the information in the black box neural network he had in his head, right? That kind of worked, caught the ball, but was very obtuse and gotten the knowledge out and written it down in a symbolic way that he could explain to his friends and colleagues. And even when we don't do math, but when we speak English, it's the same sort of thing. We, we distill out the knowledge from our black box and we explain it to other people when we speak to each other, like right now on the podcast. And, um, I personally think that one of the things that we actually absolutely need to figure out how to do if we're going to ever be able to trust superintelligent systems is to uh, not just let them put them in charge of human lives uh, while they're a black box. You, you, you can use the power, the learning power of black boxes to have them learn a bunch of cool stuff. But then before you deploy it, you want to extract out what they have actually learned and put it into some system that you completely understand instead. So if you think, for example, about how we, how we send rockets to the International Space Station, right? 
we took all the knowledge about how things move under gravity and all of that stuff and distilled it out into these equations that we could then program in to some computer in that spaceship where we can verify that it's going to do exactly what we want and it's not going to crash down on your house in England. And then we send it off. The spaceship performs just as well as it would if it were a black box. In fact, even a little bit better because it, we have all these formal methods verifying its behavior yeah yeah so this is something this is something we've been doing a lot and with some success i have to say for example the, the my favorite thing we've managed to do so far was we just took a bunch of of data from different physics formulas we took the we took the 100 most complicated or famous equations from from one of my favorite physics textbook series the Feynman lectures on physics okay and then for each formula which is always other form like something equals some complicated formula of some other variables we just would make an Excel spreadsheet out of it with each of the variables. And then the last column would be the result. So like Newton's law of gravity, you would have the force in the last column, and then you would have like the masses and the distances and blah, 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 and the other. We didn't tell the computer what the formula was. We we're like, okay, here's the data. Can you figure out what the formula is? Okay. This is a problem which, if the formula is what we in, in geek speak call a linear formula, where you're just basically multiplying each column by some number and adding it up, it's called linear regression, and engineers all over the world do it all the time. It's, it's very easy. But for general formulas, it's super hard. So if Johannes Kepler, for example, about 400 years ago, he had managed to get hold of the data that Tycho Brahe had gathered of how the planets move around the solar system. He spent four years staring at this data until he figured out that, oh, the formula is an ellipse. Mm. Oh, wow, okay. Planets are going in an ellipse. So our code was able to discover that automatically now in just an hour. Right. And in fact, it was able to rediscover all of these 100 physics equations just from data like this. And th this is just a tiny step, I think, in the right direction, but it is hopeful. I, I think we should be more ambitious than just training black boxes and not think of that as like the last step in our work, but rather we have a black box that does something smart. Now, stage two is how do we get the knowledge out and embody and put it in a safer system the way we understand it. It's kind of like if you're a scientist, once you figure out how to catch a baseball or something, you know, or once you understand something, now you go write a paper about it and explain it to your friends. You don't just stop. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a sense of what state-of-the-art AI isn't doing that humans do? I mean, it seems like at least the language systems, they can be like cross-media, so they're able to like connect words with images, uh, I imagine with sounds as well, so they can like make all of these linkages that humans do. It's seemingly they're kind of able to, able to reason through and solve problems and give, give answers to stuff. I guess not the language models, but the ones that play computer games, especially the complex ones, are able to engage in like long-term strategic planning, or at least they're like able to learn what strategies work. And yet it seems like, I mean, it does seem like humans do stuff that these systems don't, but I'm not sure that I can quite put my finger on what is it that humans do that uh, that machine learning doesn't. Well, in terms of tasks, it's pretty easy. So, you know, good luck getting um, Google Palm, you know, to do your next podcast for you. Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> how long? How long until you just, you just train it on tons of podcast transcripts and then it's able to ask pretty sensible questions? That is a very interesting point Question, that you yeah. are making, Rob. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so your point is it can't do that now, but doesn't it seem like the language models, if we just make them better, will be able to have conversations that are kind of insightful? Maybe. I'm hoping there will be some new obstacles that will take, be a lot harder than yeah. we thought so we have more time to, to make stuff safe. As I said, right now, these models are still fairly dumb. There's a bias where when you read their papers, you think the models are better than they are because they cherry pick the examples, obviously. 
that they put in there. Yeah, do, do you know how big that effect is? It's quite big. I was playing with with one of these language models yesterday, actually, and I just asked it. Uh, I asked it what's eleven times thirteen, and it couldn't do it. Uh, okay. For example. Yeah, interesting. Um, but to be a little more nerdy about it, I think uh, one thing where where, where where human intelligence is still far ahead of any artificial intelligence is our ability to combine, on one hand, the black box neural network kind of intuitive learning stuff that mice and cats and Seagulls are also great at with the symbolic reasoning that old fashioned AI was good at, like Deep Blue that beat Kasparov in chess or some mathematical theorem prover or whatever to combine those two. I, I mentioned the example of Galileo sort of really gets the point where, where you use your intuition, the neural network kind of way to just get something, it clicks, ah, I see the pattern, you know. And then step two is you translate it into symbolic reasoning. And I, I think it's the the ability to combine this um, neural network, fuzzy, black boxy technology with the symbolic technology that has made us humans able to rule the earth, Yeah, I would say. And uh, part of what we do also much better than uh, artificial intelligence is we have these representations in our brain about knowledge, which are much more sophisticated than, than uh, typically what these, a lot of these other models have. They might overcompensate by having way more, having enormous number of parameters or whatever. But it's pretty obvious if you start, if you just decide to, to mess a little bit with these language models, you can sometimes get them to say really dumb things, which make it obvious that they didn't really understand yeah. things in, even in the way a five-year-old did, right? Okay. Whereas for an actual human five-year-old, for them, there is a world out there. They have some representation of it. And so the, the, fortunately, there's still quite a ways to go. We've uh, geeked out now quite a bit about one of the two um, technical challenges that I think are most crucial in, in AI safety, being that we have to get away from just settling for just black boxes. We, we, we have to aim higher. Yeah, black boxes are great, but that should be step one. Step two is now get the knowledge out of the black box and build something safe, a safe AI system, which performs just as well, but that you can trust. The other one we should talk about it a little also. It's equally important, which is the goals that you give to your system. So Stuart Russell has gone on a, on a long crusade on this and has a great book and a TED Talk. I would recommend anyone to check out if they're unfamiliar with this. But already um, Irving J. Good and, and early thinkers and also Nick Boostrom have talked about, how, just and Steve Omohundro and others, how catastrophic it can be if you have a system which is both super smart and just has a single goal. Yeah. Because... Paradoxically, almost whatever goal you give it, uh, something disastrous happens, which is not obvious at first. You know, you you, you might think that if you if, you know if you have your super smart future self driving car or whatever, and you just tell it to take you to the airport as fast as possible, and then you you get there covered in vomit and, and chased by helicopters, and you're like, no, 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 that's not what the the goal was that I gave you, and the car says, that's exactly what you asked for. Yeah, you know, it, it's very hard to specify precisely the goal that you want. Uh, if if you uh, have any really open-ended goal that you give it, a sufficiently powerful system, you know, maybe to uh, uh, calculate as many digits of pi as possible, or Nick talks about this silly example of making as many paper clips as possible, then um, you might think that's completely harmless because the machine doesn't care even about dying, so it shouldn't care if you turn it off at all, right? Yeah. But as soon as you think about it a little bit more, it doesn't want to be turned off because then it can't make any more computations or paper clips. So it's going to defend itself. Yeah. And you might think it's not going to be greedy because I didn't make it a go- give it a goal to 
accumulate resources, but you need resources to accomplish the goal and it's going to try to get as many as possible. And, and then eventually if it says, you know, Hey Rob, nice atoms, I need them. <laughs> and it takes your atoms. Yeah. You, you have a problem. The long and the short of this is, yeah, you, you can still take the approach of thinking really hard about what goals you should give your, your machines. But <laughs> I think that's the wrong way to think about it. If you, if you try that, then first you have to make machines understand your goals, and then you have to make it adopt your goals, and then you have to make it retain your, your goals. So anyone listening to this who does have kids knows that when they're tiny, they don't understand your goals. And then when they're teenagers, they do understand, but they don't want to adopt your goals. <laughs> but you fortunately have some magic years in between where they'll still listen to you at least some of the time, and you have your chance to sort of make them adopt your goals. But it's hard. A machine that's undergoing some sort of a self-improvement might blow through that malleable phase way too quick for you to be able to do anything with it. And we also know that, that we don't keep our goals throughout our lifetime, right? So if you make this machine whose goal is to create this awesome paradise for humans, it might eventually find that as boring as my kids find their Legos now, which are just gathering dust in the basement. At least if you've given it a tendency towards like wanting novelty or creativity or stimulation or something like that. Yeah. So I think that ultimately that whole approach of trying to give machines one perfectly defined goal and let's kind of let it rip is very wrong, wrongheaded. What Stuart Russell has been pushing is a way of just changing the whole foundation of how we do machine learning, where you don't give it a goal. One, one strategy is that you don't you, you build your very intelligent machine and you say, okay, go execute the goal. And the machine is like, what's the goal? And, um, and you're like, well, I'm not telling you yet, but I'll let you find out piece by piece. Now, that way, the machine has an incentive to keep coming back and asking questions from you okay. because it's really afraid of doing something which... So it has to be... Open problem. Yeah, yeah. It, it has to feel uncertain about what you want. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of nerdy names for different parts of this, like inverse reinforcement learning and so on. And... It's a very active field of research. I think it's great that a lot of people are going into it. If there's someone listening to this who likes computer science and AI, rest assured, there is so much to contribute in this space going forward. But not even that's enough. Even if you can completely solve the problem of making machines have their goals align with their owner, you're absolutely not out of the woods. So if we, if we come back to where we started the whole podcast again, right? We, what we really would like to do is create alignment, not just between the incentives that a machine has and the well-being of its owner, but we would like to align everything so that the incentives you give to every person, to every corporation, to every government is also aligned with the well-being of, of creating a good world. humanity as a whole. That's right. Multi-scale alignment is a nice nerdy phrase for this that I like a lot. I used to call it uh, meta-alignment, but then my friend Andrew Critch convinced me that multi-scale alignment is what it should be called. And if you, if you think about this for a moment, this is something we can all relate to, no matter what our job is and no matter what our education background is. For example, why is it that um, if you walk down the street and there's a baby lying there, you're going to instinctively go help it? It's because those tribes that didn't have that compassionate wiring got out-competed by the tribes that did, right? Why is it that if people, two people get into a bar fight and they, if it's not in Texas and they don't have guns, then, you know, whatever, they're probably not going to kill each other. They have, because we have a very strong inhibition 
towards you know, doing too much harm to each other. It's again, because if the, those tribes, where they didn't have those genes, they kind of self-destructed and got outcompeted. So, so Darwinian evolution already did a lot of alignment. We're trying to align sort of very basic incentives that individuals felt yeah. with what was good for the community they were part of. And then as communities got bigger, we also then innovated on top of that. So we invented gossip, for example. If you go to the pub with your friends every Friday and after 20 times, you, you never picked up the tab, mysteriously, you're not going to get invited anymore because yeah, right. the gossip got out that you're, <laughs> you're, just, you're stingy. Not a good or person to you, have around. Yeah, and, and that's another very powerful alignment mechanism, if you think about it, where if you get a reputation as being a compulsive liar or, or someone who's very untrustworthy, you get socially punished in various ways. So you have an incentive to be honest and trustworthy and loyal. And why is that exactly? You know, in world religions, it's often been phrases, the reason that, it, that we should do this is because of some higher principle. But from an evolution point of view, you could also understand it as just that this is an alignment mechanism that favored the groups that had it so they could compete better against the other ones, right? Right, right. And then if we zoom out more, as we go to the really big picture, uh, when societies got still bigger, we decided to start to codify this stuff so that we invented the whole idea of, of a legal system saying that if, you know, that bar fight, if you really did kill the other guy, well, then you're going to actually, you have this incentive that if you do this, you're going to actually have to be spending many years in a small room eating kind of boring food to think it over. As a result, we, we create these laws, again, to align the incentives of, of individuals with the greater good. We also have laws to align the incentives of McDonald's and other companies with the greater good for the same reason. So the idea of multi-scale alignment is as old as civilization itself, right? Yeah. And uh, the point I want to make here is that if we want an awesome future with ever more powerful tech we have, we have to solve multi-scale alignment. It's not enough to just solve it at one level. So what does it look like for that not to happen? So, so we, we create AIs and, and if they're aligned with some individual but not multi-level, uh, multi then what, what happens? For example, let's look at some, just some past failures. Like, um, so in, in the 1950s, the, the first article came out in the New England Journal of Medicine saying smoking causes lung cancer. Okay. Yeah. 20 years later, that whole idea was largely silenced and marginalized. And it took decades until there was much policy and warning labels on cigarettes and restrictions on marketing cigarettes to minors. Why was that? Because of a failure of alignment. So big tobacco was, was so rich and so powerful that they successfully pulled off a regulatory capture where they actually did, they hacked the system that was supposed to align them and bought them, right? Big Oil did the same thing when they, they, they've, of course, known for a very long time that um, there was a little conflict between their personal profits and maybe what was best for the society. So they did a regulatory capture, invested a lot of money in manufacturing doubt about whether what they were doing was actually bad. They hired really, really good lawyers. So even though in the social contract, the idea had been that the governments would be so powerful that they could give the right incentives to the companies, uh, that failed, right? The, <laughs> right. Well, I guess you, the companies became too too close in power to the government, so they could no longer be properly constrained anymore. Exactly. And, and you know, 
whenever the regulator becomes smaller or has less money or power than the one that they're supposed to regulate, you have a potential problem like this, right? That's exactly why we, are so, we have to be careful with an AI that's smarter than the, the humans that are supposed to <laughs> regulate it. And what I'm saying is it's trivial to, to envision exactly the same failure mode happening now. If, if some, whatever company first builds AGI realizes that they can take over the world and uh, do whatever the CEO wants with the world, but that's illegal in the country they're in, well, they can just follow the playbook of big tobacco and, and, and big oil and take over right, the government. Okay. And I would actually go as far as saying that that's already started to happen. There was a, one of the most depressing papers I've read in uh, many years it was written by two brothers, Abdallah and Abdallah, where they had made a comparison between uh, big tobacco and big tech. Yeah. And, and they, they started, even though the paper is full of statistics and charts that I'll spare you, you can, people can find it on archive.org. They open with this spectacular uh, hypothetical. So suppose you're, you're going to this, you go to this public health conference, okay? Huge conference, thousands of, of top researchers there. And um, this person that is on the stage giving this keynote about public health and smoking and lung cancer and, and so on. And then you realize that that person actually is funded by a tobacco company, but they, nobody told you about that. And it doesn't say in the bio, they didn't say where they introduced it. Then you go out into the expo area and you see all these nice booths there by Philip Morris and Marlboro. And you realize that they are the main sponsors of the whole conference, right? That would be anathema in a public health conference. You would never tolerate that, right? Now you go to, to NeurIPS. Tomorrow is the deadline for me this, or my group to submit two papers. This is the biggest AI conference of the year. And you have all these people talking even sometimes about, in some session about uh, AI and society or AI ethics. And they forget to mention that they got all these grants from big tech. And then you go out to the expo area and there's the Facebook booth and there's the Google booth and, and so on and so forth. And for some reason, this kind of capture of academia that would be considered completely unacceptable at a public health conference or for that matter, a climate change conference is considered completely okay in the AI community. That is a really interesting example, yeah. And that just shows yeah, how, how uh, they, were, they were already doing this playbook. They're getting ac funding the academics who might otherwise criticize them. And we've seen it firsthand. So in, in, uh, after the first Puerto Rico conference, I think we, we, we came out with this open letter signed by a who's who of AI researchers saying that AI safety is important and yada yada. And then two years later, we got the Asilomar AI principles signed by you know, thousands of influential AI researchers saying, here are the ethical principles we should think about. And we were like, yay, this is so great. Everything is going in the right direction. Since then, things have, I think, largely gone backward. And huh. in hindsight, I think we just woke up the sleeping, dra the sleeping bear. The, the in then industry started to put, gradually push back against this and realize maybe they didn't want to be regulated. Right. And... There now, you know, there are more lobbyists in uh, Washington and Brussels from big tech than there are from oil companies even. And, and we're seeing more and more people also saying, yeah, Max, I agree with you when you talk about how we have to have safe, you know, self-driving cars that are safe. But yeah, you should really stop talking about this super intelligent stuff and existential risk because that just freaks people out. And you can see how they're trying to very much uh, 
<laughs> refocus people <laughs> who want to do AI safety into anything that's not bad for their bottom line. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't need it to be as extreme a case as, you know, tobacco companies or smoking companies um, supporting a health conference. Just having like any particular interest group, even if it's not obvious that their interests are in direct conflict with the rest of society in some particular way, being completely dominant within a conversation because they're the ones who like create the forum and decide who gets a, gets a platform and, and who doesn't. Even if we don't know how it's problematic right now, it could be problematic in future because, you know, just like one particular company or one particular person doesn't necessarily have <laughs> exactly the same values or, you know, personal interests as society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I guess I imagine that the folks at Google are like on these different companies, they really do want to, uh, they presumably are interested in having these conversations and they live in this world too and they, and they want to make things go well. But nonetheless, they come at it with a particular perspective of people who are actually developing this and want to deploy it for particular goals that, that they have. And that means that they're not completely in alignment with the rest of society, even if they have the best of intentions. And so it's at least setting up the potential for the conversation to not be nearly as productive as it could be. Exactly. And I want to be very clear here. You know, I have a lot of friends who work for, for these big tech companies who are great people. I, I'm not faulting any individuals here. They're idealistic. They want to do good. But the fact of the matter is, if you talk to people who were worked in tobacco companies, or, or if you talk to some executive right now who works for ExxonMobil or whatever, you know, there was a good people. It's not that there's some person who's like, haha, I'm so evil. Now let me ruin the climate. Mm. In some way, a large corporation already is better thought of as an agent. An agent, intelligent from all agent. Of its components. It's not yet super mm. intelligence, but it's definitely more intelligent than any individual human being. Mm. And, uh, you know, British Petroleum, um, I happen to know the former CEO of it. He's a very nice guy, a Swedish guy, but really like him. But like the organization itself is much more powerful than any person. If the CEO of a large tobacco company says, yeah, I really don't like this lung cancer thing. Let's stop selling cigarettes. <laughs> Next thing that's going to happen is he's going to get fired and be replaced by another CEO, right? Mm. And uh, if if someone thinks that, ah, uh, it's impossible ever for some other non-human entity to be smarter than us and cause problems. Just think about what it's like to go head to head with a large corporation over some in some legal battle or whatever. Good luck with that, I say, right? Yeah. And it's very, very powerful. And um, and the thing that happens is even the companies that work for the corporation themselves also get quite effectively brainwashed by by what the corporation wants them to believe. They start to believe the, the press releases that came out from the PR department of the own department. The CEO often isn't the guy who's doing the, looking into the lung cancer thing, right? He's told by some others that this, this is safe, the cigarette. And um, there's also a, a selection effect. It's super powerful where, you know, if, if you, you ha you'll always have people with a spectrum of opinion about anything, right? And uh, you're not going to get the job to be the CEO of a tobacco company if you think that smoking is the most terrible thing and has to be stopped, right? So by definition, the people who are there are the people who already hold sincerely the beliefs that the corporation needs them to hold. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a hilarious interview with Noam Chomsky on the BBC where they're arguing about whether BBC is biased or not. And, 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 the, and the, the journalist gets kind of pissed with Noam Chomsky and says, do you really believe that I'm not sincere in, my, in what I'm saying? And, and Chomsky says... Of course, you're sincere in your beliefs, but if you didn't have them, you wouldn't have this job. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really good observation. 
Every so often, I've, I've heard this uh, line that, you know, we shouldn't worry so much about super intelligent machines because we already have super intelligent beings and uh, they're corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always thought that that's like very insightful, but it seems like it kind of argues the other way because but corporations no- are only like somewhat more intelligent than individuals. And they're pretty aligned with human interests because they're made up of people. <laughs> and also they've come about gradually over time mm-hmm. such that we could have had centuries to learn how to keep them aligned with, mm-hmm. with, with interests. And we've had these other very powerful institutions called governments designed to control them. And yet we still struggle. <laughs> and so if if you develop something that's much more super intelligent, super capable than a corporation, and it comes in in a few years, <laughs> and it like skates ahead, and it's not even comprised of agents that we understand like human beings, then uh, it seems like we could be in really uh, hot water. <laughs> All great points you make. And corporations are certainly not anywhere near the definition of super intelligent, right? Yeah. They are more intelligent than any one human as an agent. And that's why generally if a corporation wants one thing and you want the other thing, the corporation is going to get its way. We have the advantage with them, though, that they evolve on the human timescale. Right? The corporation doesn't get twice as powerful every week or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. and so it, it, we can learn a great deal for how to deal with artificial superintelligence by, by trying to first figure out how we can solve multi-scale alignment with corporations. And this is actually very much linked to why I'm so interested in the whole media news business, because I think, um, again, it's not sufficient to just figure out how to align machines to their owners. And, and, and um, tobacco companies, like they, they kind of shifted gears. Eventually, they acknowledged that, yeah, it causes lung cancer, and, and they, they changed their talking points a bit so that they could still keep selling cigarettes and make enough money. Uh, we, we've also seen a big shift in strategy from big tech now. So now what big tech generally says is, yes, please work hard on AI safety to figure out how to make our machines aligned with the goals of our companies. Work on that. It's great. And the stuff that you and I talked about earlier there with getting rid of the black boxes and so on is all stuff that big tech actually loves. I see. Right? They don't want to have a machine that doesn't obey the CEO. But what they don't want is... What, for example, the European Union is trying to do right now, which is pass the EU AI Act, which would actually put some new incentives in place to try to align the behavior of the corporations more with the citizens of the European Union's incentives. There's been some very serious lobbying by tech firms against it. And and this is actually very exciting because it's being discussed and decided now, this week, next week, and in the months ahead. So you you might think that the the main focus of the of this new first ever really powerful AI law would be on the most powerful systems because that's the future, right? But lobbyists are putting in this fantastic loophole saying that there's a little exemption here. General purpose AI systems are basically exempt. Oh. So what? It, <laughs> on what possible basis? <laughs> because it's it's very convenient because basically what they're saying is Dolly, GPT-3, any of these things, they tend to be built by companies from the U.S. or China. And then they can be used by smaller companies in Europe to do various tasks with them. And, and what the exemption says is that all the responsibility falls only on the European companies that use them for something. Okay. Even though that's, of course, completely unreasonable because they have no way of knowing what's inside the black box exactly. I see. Uh, so yeah. if, if if this loophole stays, then um, this EU AI Act is just going to be the laughing stock of the AI community. There, there's been a lot of pushback recently. In fact, I was invited to give a talk to speak about this at the European Parliament uh, quite recently. So 
and as you can probably guess from what I'm saying now, <laughs> I was encouraging them to close the loophole. Uh, right. So, and France just came out yesterday, actually, and said that they support closing the loophole. They all want to make sure that the brain of the AI is not exempt. But this illustrates beautifully what we were talking about here, where uh, yeah, every player in a game is always looking out for themselves. You can't blame them for that, right? So a company will support AI safety to make their computers do what they want. And they'll generally be opposed to anything that's trying to change the incentives on the company or have more oversight on the company. And since even some of the major funders in AI safety come from big tech and made their money in big tech, you know, it's not surprising if they are more into funding the kind of research that they want to see happen, namely align the machines to their companies, rather than like policy research or advocacy to try to actually align the corporations with uh, the greater good. Yeah. Yet, if we fail to do that, I just want to say that then obviously what's going to happen is eventually big tech, many companies or just one company will become the government. Yeah, I mean, I've been happy to see over the last five or 10 years this explosion in the AI alignment work that is just trying to make sure that these programs do what the companies want them to do and what the companies want to be able to sell them as, as being able to do. Because we, we at least need to be able to do that. That's, that's like a prerequisite, even if it's, if it's not sufficient. I suppose even there, my impression as an outsider is that the capabilities of AI systems are, is substantially outstripping, mm-hmm. as far as I know, the, the progress on all of these even narrow alignment issues like interpretability or you know inverse reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think I'm probably right about that? I think you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, are we sleepwalking into disaster, basically, just as a species? Yeah, unless we change course. But that's, of course, exactly why so many of us have been working so hard to try to accelerate this AI safety research, right? It's not feasible to slow down the progress in capability, but it's very feasible to accelerate the progress in safety. So I I think of this as a race, the wisdom race. We just want to make sure we win the race between the growing wisdom with which we manage our technology and the power of the tech itself. And that's why we launched, with Elon Musk's help, the first ever AI safety research program. Super excited to see so much more funding in this space now from from many, many actors. That's also why we we just launched these Vitalik Buterin um, Talent Pipeline Fellowships, where we try to incentivize more talented young people to go in and do PhDs in AI extensional safety, postdocs, etc. I think this this field needs much more talent. You know, basically every university worth its name has someone doing cancer research. Every computer science department should also have some people working on AI safety. Just duh. And the good news there is, is that um, the field has become very respectable and a lot of more people are going into it together. Hopefully we can continue to grow the field rapidly. And another good thing is this is aligned with the incentives of the tech companies. The, the narrow technical alignment. So they also support it. Yeah, on that on that theme, what do you think is the chance that you and I have misunderstood the iterative process by which these really advanced AI agents are going to come into the world? And maybe, in fact, ordinary efforts to make AI programs do the stuff that their creators, the, you know, the, the, the corporations that are trying to sell them, uh, you know, ordinary efforts to make the programs do what the creators directly want as they pass through each stage of capabilities that that actually might, in fact, be enough to keep them consistently aligned. It seems like this is the view of some ML researchers that because that sort of narrow alignment is so intertwined with capabilities that that, that in actual fact, they, they will just improve, improve in tandem in a way that is uh, that, that means that we shouldn't worry about it too much. 
totally possible you know i would give it less than 50 percent chance but even if it is 50 yeah. percent likely that we'll get lucky like this that also means there's a 50 percent chance that we're unlucky and are walking towards a cliff in which case we should really focus on it so so i think again this is one of those things none of us has a crystal ball if i've learned anything as a scientist it's to be humble about how, how little i actually know and um it's exactly the humility that means we need to do AI safety research in case there is a problem. Yeah, I suppose this would seem a lot more plausible if you know AI capabilities were going to improve very gradually. You know, each year can do a little bit better, a little bit more stuff, and we have lots of time to learn and observe the behavior and see the failings. I, I suppose it's a little bit hard to see if, like, if at any point you have a sudden jump or a sudden like explosion because you do get some some. For a few months, even a few weeks, you know, some recursive self-improvement process kicks in. It seems like this thing of the the, the marriage of capabilities and alignment, uh, like growing appropriately in in tandem with one another, could could really easily break down. Yeah, for sure. And 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 even if we succeed completely with this, and always keep for the entire future of humanity the machines aligned with 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 their owners, it's important to remember that that's still it's only half the problem. It's only half the problem. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's move on from the technical stuff. The situation doesn't sound amazing, but it seems like the situation might be even more troubling on the policy and deployment side. I guess, so as we talked about eight years ago and five years ago, you organized these, these, these two really big conferences were brought together. A lot of people who might have had influence to shape this. There was 2015, 2017, okay. 2019. So seven years ago was okay. the first one. So quite a few of them. Yeah. Can you tell us yeah, maybe more about how that side of things has been evolving over time? It sounds like, I mean, from your book in 2017, it sounded like you were incredibly positive and optimistic and happy with how things had gone and how many people were bought into the need to do all of this policy and deployment thinking ahead of time. And it sounds like now maybe you think reality has kicked in and maybe this work isn't going to be done naturally. Yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. Uh... I think my optimism peaked exactly at the time when I was writing the last chapter of Life 3.0. <laughs> right, yeah. Because you have, you have this like fantastic story where it just seems like, wow, we're just making so much progress. We spent a few years on it. Oh, everything's coming together. <laughs> yes. You know, we had, it felt like um, the AI community was actually acknowledging that this was a real problem. You have had all these talented, idealistic people now working on it. What could possibly go wrong? And then, of course, what gradually happened was, to a large extent, I'd say corporate pushback, where some powerful entities started feeling threatened by the idea of maybe getting regulated and so on. And just like big oil and big tobacco, there was a subtle but palatable counter push trying to um, refocus the AI safety efforts on anything that didn't threaten uh, the corporate money. So let's, yeah, let's get everybody talking about racial bias in the training set. Let's get everybody talking about this and that ethics. Just just don't talk about human extinction or slaughterbots or any of that stuff that we want to sell. Or what about mass unemployment? Is that is that kosher? That's also something which, well, there I think they've reached sort of an equilibrium where there there's always enough cheerleaders who keep repeating the talking points that uh, there'll always be new jobs. Okay. People have warned about this ever since the Luddites, you know, that, that even though you also have a lot of serious economists saying it's different this time, yeah. and they don't feel particularly threatened. I mean, yeah, this, is, this feeds into the, the greater um, debate about whether to change the tax system or have a universal basic income, where it's not really the tech companies versus the rest. It's more the, the richest 
of the rich versus versus the rest. But if we come back and focus on on the, on the, the tech specific stuff here. Suppose the Nordic community comes up with all these great solutions so that for, for the entire future, machines will always obey their owners, no matter how powerful they are. Does that mean we're all set? No. <laughs> no. So basically, if we're in a situation where we, we go into a kindergarten, we have all these perfectly nice and friendly kids, and you give them, say, hey, here's a box of hand grenades and chainsaws and circular saws. Well, have fun playing with these, you know. What could possibly go wrong? They clearly don't have the wisdom to manage technology this powerful. And um, this can happen at a larger scale of society as well. I, I often feel that um, name, name whatever politician you want, you know, give them a box of 13,000 hydrogen bombs. I'm, just, I'm not completely filled with confidence that they have all the wisdom needed to manage this wisely. And uh, now go give them artificial general intelligence. <laughs> And I feel even less confidence. We, we've seen previous examples, uh, even where an entire human population managed to drive itself extinct, like on Easter Island. Someone has a great idea, let's chop down all the trees, you know, and yay. And then by the time they realize their mistake, they just can't recover. So I would, I would very much like to continue thinking on this about this multi-scale alignment business to avoid that we humans basically ho- get hoisted by our own petard. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the alignment thing in the context of nuclear weapons. I suppose the technical alignment question is maybe an analogy is like making sure that the nuclear bombs don't explode on their own, like without being asked to. But nonetheless, we we have solved that problem. We have made sure that nuclear bombs probably aren't going to explode unless we get them to. However, (laughs) that does not make the situation completely safe. And of course, you never get, I think, an AI that's doing all kinds of new things and being asked new questions and to solve new problems all the time to be anywhere <laughs> near as stable as a, as a nuclear bomb just sitting there. And, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a far more like general technology. And that's a, that's a great example, actually, with nuclear, because that's quite right. We haven't had a hydrogen bomb that just randomly blew up. We solved the technical part there. Yet, um, you know, we, one of the things we do with the Future Life Institute is we have this annual celebration of an unsung hero who did something great. And one year we celebrated Vasily Arkhipov, this guy who um, single-handedly averted a Soviet nuclear strike on the U.S. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that that he was there and happened to do it. It was just a random coincidence that he even happened to be on that submarine. If he hadn't been there, they would have launched because the captain and the political officer had already decided to launch. But he happened to be on that sub out of the four in the fleet. And because he happened to outrank the captain, he could stop it, you know. Another year, we gave a Future Life Award to Stanislav Petrov for, again, helping avert another accidental Soviet nuclear attack on the U.S. And, uh, you know, if he had been replaced by an AI, actually, Petrov, we might have had World War III that year. So this, this already goes to show that uh, it's not enough to make the technology obey the humans. You also have to give the right incentives to the humans. And when we build really complicated human systems, sometimes they fail. Yeah, So something that's a little bit puzzling here is that it seems like it's in the interests of, I mean, in as much as you believe that AI is going to advance a lot, it's going to have massive influence in society, it could end up being the most important invention ever. It seems like it's in the interests of all of the individual staff at Google that things go really well, that we like create a flourishing future. It's in the interest of all of the shareholders of the company. It's even in a sense in the interest probably of the company in terms of maximizing its profits that the deployment of AI producer like generally flourishing humanity and economy and so on forever just like it was in the interest of everybody on easter island that they don't go didn't go extinct 
Yeah. And so to some extent, you wonder, like, it seems that it requires not only like some potential conflict of interest between like Google and society as a whole, but actually like uh, a certain narrowing focus of specific people who are making decisions within a corporation to not think about the like century long vision that you might have of, of, of a truly flourishing company and what kind of world it wants to be involved in, in creating. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this question of why we keep falling so short of our potential. I have a so three quarters written paper about exactly this. It's called "Why Does Humanity Fall So Far Short of Its Potential?" It, you sort of alluded. To, we've sort of alluded yeah. to two of the key reasons there. Uh, I want to rise above the silliest finger pointing and say it's because of politician X or whatever, and look at the, dyna- the actual dynamics that are happening instead. Right? How how can you end up in a situation where something you know, takes place that nobody really wanted? Uh, one mechanism has been very extensively studied in game theory, from Prisoner's Dilemma to the Tragedy of the Commons, where we can set up these situations where everybody is just following their own incentive and you end up in a much worse outcome than you could have ended up with if people cooperated, right? Uh, there's a, for someone listening to this, if they just want to read one thing, I, I would recommend um, Meditations on Moloch. Yeah, yeah. On Slate Star Codex by Scott Alexander, full of great examples of this. Th- these sort of things happen a lot, in our society and uh, the nuclear arms race is a perfect example of this where you have the u.s the soviet union now russia they're all following their incentives and uh, there was a 75 percent chance that we would have had world war three during that Arkhipov incident because there were four submarines we lucked out he was on that one if that had happened it would have been that kind of failure a multi so-called multipolar trap as the game theorists would call it or or shitty Nash equilibrium if, if you're an economics <laughs> buff. Yeah. So the basic antidote to, to those problems is always coordination, better coordination, which is hard. That's why we still haven't solved climate change, for example, or for that matter, the nuclear arms race. But that's, it's even worse because that's not the only issue. We've already alluded to it a little bit. Another issue is even if we tried to always do what was in your own personal best interest. You know, suppose someone had solved this this uh, multi-scale alignment, okay, and set up that thing so that if you just did what was in your interest, followed your incentives, things would work out great for everyone. You might not be able to figure out actually what's best for you because the world is complicated, right? If you had some sort of fictitious, infinitely powerful super hypercomputer, you could think through every possible action and, and what impact that would have. But we don't have that. We are what in machine learning nerd speak is known as an agent of bounded rationality. We have a finite amount of neurons, a finite amount of time to think, and we have to divide that between doing many different tasks. And because of that, we can be hacked and we can can often fail. When we lived in our natural habitat 50,000 years ago when we were living in caves, then the environment that we had evolved to function in optimally was the same environment we lived in generation after generation. So we developed a bunch of, of heuristic hacks, like when you feel that when there's not enough nutrients, you have this thing called hunger and you, you eat stuff. Or when you're thirsty, you drink stuff if it doesn't taste weird. And if you see someone who you find very attractive and you know, maybe you can make, a bit, make some copies of your genes and maybe you should fall in love with this person so you take care of them. So in other words, evolution implemented a bunch of shortcuts which weren't actually the full computation but they generally made us make 
really useful rules of thumb, and they usually worked because we applied them in the same situation they had been optimized for. Then we started inventing so much technology that we radically transformed the environment we lived in, and our old rules of thumb went from being good to sometimes being counterproductive. Like now, this idea that you should always eat anything that you find that sweet tastes sweet or fatty caused an obesity epidemic. And um, so you can already see how, how this fact that we have bounded rationality has started to cause some problems. Also, the, the, the high levels of aggressiveness that might have been optimal when we lived in small groups and didn't meet strangers very often maybe is less helpful now when you have people packed together with nuclear weapons and stuff. But then something else is happening now, which is making it even worse. Because I would say all of those failures I just listed off, like the obesity epidemic, for example, which come from bounded rationality, they kind of happen coincidentally. It just turned out that this instinct we had to always eat sweet stuff went from being beneficial to not being. It wasn't like anyone had planned it to be that way. But now we have... Uh, ever more sophisticated marketing research uh, powered by machine learning, which has a direct profit incentive to look at you, make a very detailed model of, of all the rules of thumb that you use that are a little bit off from what's actually in your self-interest. Yeah. And then exploit them, micro-target them. So if you, know, if, if you are more likely to buy something that you don't need just because it's accompanied by a photo of a sexy person, you know, they will try to exploit that to make you waste your money. And uh, if they realize that you have a rule of thumb to vote for people who say certain things and act in certain ways or whatever, then they will study that in great detail. And then they will take, maybe maybe there was just some pretty seemingly minor little departure between your rule of thumb there and and what's actually in your self-interest, but they'll find them and they'll use all of them and then they'll make you do something Will you maybe vote for someone who's actually going to make you poorer, even though you thought they were going to make you richer? So this, I think, is a this is something which I think is greatly exacerbated now by machine learning. That we humans are being hacked, not randomly like by sweet food previously, but very deliberately, where we're being studied to see all the ways in which the rules of thumb aren't in our are discrepant, you know, from our self interest. Yeah, yeah, and then manipulating us with that. Yeah, people talk about this a lot. It doesn't super resonate with me on a personal level because I feel like, you know, I feel like I eat pretty healthy despite the fact that people on are kind of trying mm-hmm. to sell me unhealthy food. I like manage to exercise, I guess, even though, you know, presumably, oh, right, I guess actually companies do make money out of that. So maybe this is a slightly offsetting effect that uh, companies also potentially can make a lot of money by selling you products that are in your self-interest. Indeed, that might be even, even, even slightly easier. But I can't think of many cases where I feel like I'm getting exploited to my great detriment by... By corporations or, or you know or machine learning algorithms, yeah. Can I push back on this a little bit, though? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. tell me what I'm doing wrong. Just like with the John Noam Chomsky journalism in- incident, like if you if if you were very easily hacked like this, you probably wouldn't have been so successful as to be running this podcast right now. And most people, most people in America don't have your BMI. <laughs> More than half yeah. of all Europeans are now considered overweight or obese. You know. Most people in Europe have not been as successful in their careers as you, right? So it's it's a little bit dangerous to just look at yourself and take that as being some sort of yeah. representative of how how powerful the hacking system is. Yeah, I worry, I guess, about dangers on, on both sides. I think what you're saying is like completely reasonable that presumably some people are more susceptible than others. And so possibly you could just say, you know, I could be someone who's less manipulated by this. 
on the other hand, I suppose you always worry about the alternative where it's very easy to think, oh, you know, other people, they're idiots. And like, I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm much smarter than them. And so it's not affecting me. It's, it only affects all of those chumps. I suppose a middle ground might be that I am getting hacked to some degree and I'm just like not aware mm-hmm. of the, <laughs> it. It works better when I don't know. So, uh, so there's various cases. I guess probably the, the most natural one will be uh, Twitter addiction where that's like arguably not in my interest to use Twitter as much as I do. And if I can insert some more humility, I think yeah. we are also hacked in ways that we haven't even realized so much yet, which are actually mm. quite problematic. These hacks usually work precisely as long as we don't realize them, right? Yeah. So like, why is it that there are still over 12,000 hydrogen bombs around that have almost gone off and caused nuclear winter many times over, maybe. I would say it's because we've been hacked in a different way. It's so subtle that, you know, we just notice that we almost never read in the news about what would actually happen to the to London if it got nuked or the latest research on nuclear winter, you know. We don't hear much about it. We hear a lot about how important it is to put a no-fly zone over the Ukraine right now and and why the United States has to spend $1.5 trillion replacing their nuclear submarines and other weapons by new ones. But, but for some reason, you know, this is just absent from our Facebook feeds and the front pages of the New York Times. And that's also, I would say, a kind of hacking. It's not done this time by the fast food industry. It's done by the industry that sells these weapon systems, which is one of the most successful industries on the planet, Right. Why is it, I don't want to pick on you personally, but like, why is it that uh, there is more outrage right now in the UK about Russia's invasion of the Ukraine than there was about Britain's invasion of Iraq over the weapons of mass destruction? Uh, you know, there, there are serious historians who argue that maybe a million people in Iraq were killed as a result of this. Yeah. And uh, is it really because you can make an ironclad case that the British an American invasion of Iraq was so much more morally justified than, than what Russia did? Or is it because you've been hacked? Yeah, I guess I would um, usually put that down to something more boring. Like people tend to be very good at persuading themselves that the things that are in their personal interests, or the things that they perceive as in their personal interests are just and the things that other people are doing are selfish and, un- and, and unjust rather than about being hacked specifically. But maybe you have like a very broad conception of hacking that is maybe encompasses that. Well, if you're persuaded to uh, spend a lot of your money on buying lottery tickets, you know, which some people will refer to as the stupid tax, in what sense is that more hacked than being persuaded to spend a lot of your tax money on uh, invading Iraq? Yeah, I mean, so maybe a difference is that the people who, at least some of the people who are advocating for the Iraq war, were not doing it out of perceived personal interest. I suspect that many of them like were perhaps mistakenly thinking that it was just and justified what they were doing. I guess in as much as it is a uh, someone <laughs> at an arms company who thinks that it's a bad idea for the world, but actually does just spend a whole lot of money and persuade people to go ahead and do it because they'll make money out of it, then I agree that that does sound quite analogous. Wait, are, are, you, are you hypothesizing that the marketing department in an arms company would somehow be much more ethical than the marketing department in a cigarette company? I mean, I, I don't know like how counterfactually like causally responsible arms companies are for causing the Iraq war. I, it seems like there could be other reasons why that happened that aren't primarily related to, to profit-seeking, but I'm just not... So uh, in this particular case... 
there's a lot of very interesting research that's been done subsequently by historians and others, yeah. right? And, and you, you know, like in um, even more recent, you know, if you look at the biggest think tanks that write these foreign policy white papers in the U.S., they get like a billion dollars per year from arms companies. And uh, why are the arms companies spending a billion dollars a year on that if, if they're not going to get anything back? Yeah. I mean, I think I buy the broader point in general that we should probably expect overuse of arms and over militarization relative to what is in a country's best interests because there's like more of a concentrated interest that is able to advocate in favor of that. And and I guess maybe I could think of some biases in the other way, but I think that that is the tendency that we see. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree that that is analogous or at least like partially analogous to the to the lottery ticket case. Yeah. So the good, the good. then we agree on the sign of the effect that you would expect that we should smoke more as a society than is optimal and that we should take more risk of nuclear war than optimal in both cases, because the products involved are sold by companies that have a marketing department and they want to improve shareholder value. The incentives are there and they're, they're going to follow them. Yeah. I, I think that so when we say that we're not hacked, I think it's important though to take this broader view, especially when we think about existential risk and these really large things, because I think looking at you here on the camera that the listeners can't see, you look like you're, you've been handling the personal existential risk <laughs> of dying of heart attacks are quite well you look fit and healthy and that's all good thanks max but but i would say that um you know if, if the risk of dying of a nuclear war is one percent per year or something like that or maybe higher if you live in london that one i think you you and i have been and our friend groups have been just as packed as everybody else had because it's it's really very hard to justify why humanity should want to adopt this kind of really reckless long-term strategy where you're just kind of playing Russian roulette, you know, year in and, and year out. And I think to understand why it happens, uh, we can't get a full explanation by just looking at the, uh, that the incentives, of course, that the manufacturers of <laughs> those who profit from this have. One also has to look at the mechanisms by which they do the hacking, by the making you always fear something which justifies buying these weapons, by always portraying your own country as the righteous one and not the other one. And I, mean, I find it just really interesting to compare the public goodwill enjoyed by Tony Blair versus Vladimir Putin. It's not the same for the two of them, right? No. Tony Blair is a sort of elder statesman. A very large number of people really hate Tony Blair, for what it's worth, in the UK. Mm -hmm. There's like a definitely contingent that that despises him. Um, that was that's mm -hmm. maybe like larger than I would have predicted 10 or 20 years ago. But no, I agree Vladimir Putin is holding worse esteem. And also, if you, if you accept that, um, I mean, if Vladimir Putin had said that he was just invading Ukraine because he believed that they had weapons of mass destruction, and then he invaded the country and successfully invaded it, actually, and then later said, oops, there were no weapons of mass destruction. But I really believed it at the time. Yeah. Would you feel that, uh, would you feel great about him then? If he was sincerely convinced that there were those weapons? Would I mean, it's, it's complicated. Like you might think this person is an idiot and incompetent and has been grossly immoral. I think you probably would have different expectations about what other countries they might invade and under what circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, in as much as they're just like different generating motivations, then they just lead to different forecasts about the about the kind of risk going forward. Yeah. So, But if you just analyze this at the systems level, right? Yeah. if you just compare now, compare the amount of sanctions that were placed on the United Kingdom mm. 
over their invasion of Iraq with the amount of sanctions placed on Russia now? Would you say that they're about equal or? <laughs> I would say there's a substantial difference, yes. <laughs> Why? Um, well, let's see. So, I mean, which which countries would have tried to would have tried to place sanctions on the on the U.S. I mean, I guess it seems like it would have been very costly because the U.S. is a larger fraction of the global global economy, and just like many other countries, did not super care enough about the Iraq issue in order to pay a massive cost, in order to like slightly harm the U.S. in order to like slightly change their foreign policy. I mean. So you're uh, you're grinning. So I guess you you would emphasize a different explanation. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just having fun giving you a hard time here about that when you said you were never hacked. Yeah, um, but yeah, but but um, the interesting point I'm trying to emphasize here just is how important the role of information is. Yeah, in all of these things, because the what we believe about the world has a really major impact on how we act as a species. Right, the reason that we're sanctioning Russia now much more than we sanctioned the United States and UK over the Iraq invasion isn't because we felt that uh, somehow the invasion of Iraq was incredibly justified for those weapons of mass destruction. It's, it's, it has more to do with the beliefs we had about who is a good guy, who is a bad guy, and, and, and various other things. And uh, it shows, that, therefore, how valuable it is for whoever can control the, you know, the general beliefs that people have, right? And... Um, this is also nothing new, I'm saying. You can go read Machiavelli from the 1400s, and he lays out there how important it is to have a good propaganda. Yeah. What I'm really interested in for this conversation is just how machine learning changes this and how that connects in with, with existential risk. Because um, in the old days, if you wanted to take over the world, you basically had to go invade it, with do it with force, right? Today... If you can control the information flow in a country, that's really all you need to keep winning. You can keep having elections in Russia, and you're going to win them if you control the state media in Russia, right? Yeah. And um, if you can control the information flow in the West, then you can win elections there also, ultimately. And, and it, so the interesting thing that's happening now is that most people, especially people under 30, get almost all their news from social media, which they get through big tech companies. And... Um, that gives an, a really outsized power to these companies, not just to make money, but to actually control the reality that people think that they're living in. Yeah. Well, and to, sh to shape the direction and the choices of a whole society. Exactly. So I think you and I both really believe in the democratic ideal that we should have the society going in a direction that's good for, for all of us not just for the owners of, of some companies, you know, no shade on them. And uh, for that to happen, for us to have, continue to have a healthy democracy, it's really, really important that, that the power of this information gathering system also gets put back in the hands of, of the majority of the people. Otherwise, I, I, I see us being on a fast track back into, into this really nice book written by, by your countryman, uh, George. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um yeah, okay. I, I have a few more questions about AI. Maybe we'll find time for them later. But let's, you really want to talk about the media thing. So let's, let's embrace the, the media stuff for a bit. Yeah, so I guess you see maybe more than me, the, the AI alignment stuff and disinformation and people being able to form accurate views about the world and understanding the world and being able to make decisions as, as, as groups as like deeply connected, it, it sounds like. 
I mean, this is a very mainstream concern about disinformation, uh, you know, filter bubbles, tribalism and disagreement within society. And, and I guess also the potential mass influence of tech companies over public opinion should they should they decide to exercise it fully. Um, is there anything that you think people or, or like mainstream discourse about this topic is is getting wrong? Yes, I, I, I think the, the mainstream discourse about this is already exactly where the tech companies want it to be. Mm. And politicians want it to be. The fact that you even, the first phrase you used to describe something problematic was disinformation. Yeah. That's what they want you to talk about, right? Disinformation, what does that mean exactly? Even if you go look up the definition in the dictionary, disinformation means information that's not true. And it's usually spread by some nefarious actors, like some foreign country or whatever. And who decides what's true? So, of course, the, this is also one of the oldest tricks in the book. If you're an authoritarian government and you just someone is criticizing you for being corrupt or inept or whatever, you're going to accuse them of mm. spreading disinformation. Yeah, uh, they it goes by different names and different time periods. Uh, hundreds of years ago, you'd be called a heretic <laughs> uh, for saying things that disagree with the establishment. You know, as a physicist, I can't help think of Galileo. You know, if he had tweeted out, "Hey, <laughs> hey, folks, you know, uh, Earth is orbiting the sun." That would probably have been flagged by Pope Urban VIII's uh, fact-checking system, saying you know, that this yeah, get a link to political violates our community guidelines, <laughs> yeah. you know, because <laughs> our authorities say that come get the truth instead from Pope Urban VIII. <laughs> you know, we've 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 become we've learned in science to be really humble about this business about truth, and we realize that it's really hard to figure out what's actually true. If it were so easy to figure out what's true that we could delegate it to some fact-checking committee run by the government or some company or whatever, you should totally fire me immediately from MIT. We wouldn't need researchers, scientists. Yeah. Even after the Galileo fiasco, right, we spent 300 years believing in the wrong theory of gravity. You know, your British one, Newton's one, until Einstein realized that was also wrong. So if you to really succeed as a species and actually find the truth... We have to be very humble and acknowledge the fact that sometimes the thing that almost everybody thinks is true is actually not true. We're much better off if we have a more sophisticated system for going about this. The most sophisticated system we do have so far with a track record is science itself, right? And uh, so I, I started thinking a lot about the, this New Year's resolution that I'm not allowed to whine about stuff unless I do something about it. And now you've heard me whine already for several minutes <laughs> <Okay>. about <laughs> yeah. The sorry state of the media so, system. So what are you doing? <laughs> so it's put up or shut up is what it was. So I, I thought that since machine learning is contributing to making things worse, in my opinion, and since I also believe that technology isn't evil, but just a tool, then uh, ergo, it would probably be possible to use machine learning in the opposite direction to help it improve the situation. Like... How can you use machine learning for a more data-driven kind of fact-checking, what's actually true? How can you use it to empower not the, the big companies or, or wannabe uh, authoritarian leaders, but empower the individuals instead? And when you start thinking about it, you realize that it, it's just code. It can be used both ways. And uh, what's nice about code also is it's just bits, so it's free. If you develop something at a university and you give it away to people it's open source, MIT is one of the pioneers, you know, in open source, then maybe people can use this to see through a lot of, of uh, hacking attempts or manipulation attempts. So this was, this was the impetus for this, this project. 
And it very co- conveniently coincided with when they shut down MIT over COVID and I <laughs> had all this time on my hand. So uh, it's been really, really fun, actually. Um, first thing I did was um, just set up some, some bots to go, go uh, download um, you know, 5,000 articles every day from 100 different newspapers and then, and then started working first as a student project and then as a nonprofit to make machine learning that reads all these articles and then um, tries to give people information that's useful to them to more easily uh, get a nuanced picture of what's going on. So, the, so for example, if you go to improvethenews.org, then uh, you'll see something that looks a little bit like Google News, the news aggregator. We don't write any of the articles. You can find articles from all sorts of different newspapers. But when you look a little closer, it's also different. For example, we use machine learning to read all these articles all the time and figure out which articles are about the same thing. So you, if, you, if you click on something that says, oh, now um, Boris Johnson got fined for a lockdown party, you click on it, and there are the 52 articles about this. And then uh, you can look at them. We have some sliders. If you want to see what the left is saying, you can see that. If you want to see what the right is saying, you can see that. If you have some article where it's not so much left-right, but maybe it's more like big companies versus more establishment critical perspectives. We have a slider for that. Mm. And then if you're like most people, you really don't have time to read a gazillion articles about each topic because you have a life, right? So we also make it easier for you. So we have a team of, of journalists who they'll pull out the, the facts, which are just defined empirically as the things which all the different newspapers agree on across the spectrum. So for example, if it is Boris Johnson here it's natural assumption that the guardian which is more left in england will be more critical of him and maybe uh, one of the old rupert murdoch newspapers like the times is going to be more supportive so if there's something that they both agree on mm. probably happened You're right yeah so you can see fact 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 that this uncontroversially happened then you can click away and read other stuff if all you want is the facts and you're in a hurry but if you want to know the controversy too or you want to know what uh, your Tory uncle is going to say or your, your labor uh, neighbor is going to say or whatever. We also pull out uh, the key controversy and the, diff- the key narratives on the different sides. So you, rather than uh, get sucked into just being told one side, you can kind of rise above the controversy and look down on here's the controversy. This is what happened. Here's what they're fighting about. I think about it kind of like if you have two friends who got divorced or are getting divorced. If you want to know... What happened, you probably want to talk to both of them separately. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and anything that they both agree on, it probably happened, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's also interesting to get the two narratives. And, and then another thing, we, if, if you look at this Improve the News site, there you, sometimes you see also a nerd narrative. I don't know if you've come mm-hmm. across any of those. I did, I did see that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this is, this is um, another thing which is very central in scientific truth-finding, where... You know, you get trusted as a scientist not because you have a nice tie or you're really rich or your daddy was the ki- is the king. You get it because you made predictions in the past that turned out to be correct, right? Yeah. Einstein made a bunch of predictions which sounded completely insane, such as that time would slow down, you move fast, and Mercury would move different from what Newton said. And a lot of people said, this is nuts. But then they measured, his predictions were true, so his trust score kind of went up. And uh, in the same spirit, there's this project called Metaculus, which was founded originally by my friend and future life uh, co-founder, Anthony Aguirre, and now run with 
Gaia Dempsey and a bunch of other awesome people, which is uh, exactly this kind of trust tracking system. And we're working together to now to uh, build up trust scores for, for journalists, for newspapers, for public figures, not based on anything subjective, but just on their actual track record with past predictions. Right. Yeah. And then improve the news. Uh, I guess your editors go and look for related prediction markets or aggregated uh, aggregated forecasts that are relevant to the news story and then and then throw that in as the as the nerd take on this issue. <laughs> it often has like a more neutral bent, yeah. Exactly. And we have a and we have a bot, of course, that assists with this also to find matching ones. And it's it's been quite entertaining actually, because sometimes it'll be that we had an article just recently where where the politician was saying that inflation is definitely not gonna rise now, you know, and mm. And then the nerd narrative was that 67% inflation is going to have gone up by this much, by, by this date, where you see that the, what the person is, the politician is saying is clearly out of sync with a more scientifically based thing. It was also very interesting during the Ukraine invasion to see how the nerd narrative about said that there's a you know, 90% chance that Kiev will fall by April 1st, pretty quickly went to 80%, 60%, 20%, 5%. <laughs> Two percent. Yeah, yeah. No, I was watching that very closely. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So these are just a couple of, of, of examples of, of this bigger project we're doing, where the goal is simply to take all the scientific truth finding ideas we have and import them into mass media in a way that's really accessible and easy to use without any ads or subscriptions or any BS like that, by just giving it away for free. To make it easier for people to get a more nuanced understanding of what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so I took a look around Improve the News prepping for the interview. I think it seems really cool. It's uh, So you can like find different news stories, you click through, it'll like aggregate obviously lots of different news stories from many different news sources, including many different news stories that I had never heard of, um, news sources that I'd never heard of, I think, because awesome. they're, <laughs> they're a little bit off the wall, potentially, or a little bit less mainstream, less uh, less, less mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that I typically read, which is probably great to uh, to get in my media diet a little bit. I guess, and, and then and then you've got your editors who try to explain like what is the different spin that different different kind of clusters or different opinion clusters are putting forward. So you have you know here's the pro Boris Johnson spin, here's the like anti anti Boris Johnson spin. I guess I'm not quite sure how this website can contribute in a big way to to fixing this problem. Mostly because I don't think that many people are going to read it. Maybe because it's a little bit drier, a little bit more boring. Like I think there's a reason why a lot of news sources tell people like very exciting stories and have these strong narratives. I don't think it's just because of the marketing department of of the arms industry. I think it's because people find it exciting to cheerlead for one side and hear strong opinions about who's good and and, and who's bad. And this kind of higher level thing, I suspect, you know, even for people who really like to understand the world, like they might find it a little bit bit too dry to really like get them addicted to opening up this particular tab in their browser. Uh, What what, what do you make of that? So so first of all, I think, there is a very common narrative around that uh, people don't want to hear opinions that disagree with their own. Uh, they just want their biases confirmed. I hear it all the time. I, I would say, actually, this is what most people seem to think is true at the moment. Even though there's some really interesting work by Professor David Rand here at MIT showing, arguing that it's false. Huh. And, and ra- ra- that this is actually just a really convenient narrative that, that uh, for example big tech companies are pushing to blame the consumer in, this, in the same way that big tobacco like to blame the consumer for smoking. You know, rather than saying that, oh, you know, we shouldn't maybe put cigarette vending machines in schools and market cigarettes to um, 10-year-olds, they say, no, it's just people, are, people want to smoke. They just want to 
do these things and it's it's we have no responsibility in, in the same sense it's very convenient if you say well people just this is just human nature and and the algorithms that we have have nothing to do with it what david rand found in particular is that yes in the actual media ecosystem out there now people tend to often gravitate to um, things that confirm their biases and we've, we've seen this right but he also found something really interesting that if information is presented to them in a nuanced and respectful way that disagrees with them they're often very interested think about it like suppose you have an idea for a new very different podcast okay and you tell it to this friend of yours since many years back and she says you know really interesting idea rob i think it's gonna fail do you know do you want to know why what would you say yeah no obviously i'd want to know yeah why 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 wouldn't you just dismiss it say i just want my biases confirmed well, in the case where it relates to something that I'm actually doing, I actually stand to lose if I make a bad decision and like I produce a podcast that nobody listens to. I've like wasted my time. When it comes to like broader social issues, if I have like the wrong views about Boris Johnson's parties, like it makes absolutely no practical difference to my life because I'm not making any decisions about it anyway. So that, that's one reason. <laughs> well, what if you're about to vote and, and you're persuaded that if you vote for Boris Johnson, you're going to get financially much better off? And if, if 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 this old friend of yours has an interesting comes and says, you know, there's this interesting thing you might want to know. Well, I, I actually think your net take post tax income inflation adjusted is going to go down. Wouldn't you want to hear it? I mean, to some degree, but voting versus buying a product are extremely different things. If I spend money on you know a bike and it's a rubbish bike, then I've wasted all of my money. <laughs> if I vote for the wrong person, the probability that that changes the outcome is well. In the seat that I happen to live in, in the UK, it's like the probability of changing it is zero because it's not even not a marginal seat. There's no chance that my vote could uh, could change what the government is. So, in actual fact, it's like is neither here nor there really uh, whether my views about that uh, is, is is right or wrong. But aren't you still? Don't you still put some effort into trying to figure out what the actual impact is going to be of different politicians' policies? To, to some extent, but because you be... feel it affects the country. Yeah, so I think it requires you to. Like, I mean, the motive that does make sense is if you're altruistic and you care about society as a whole, and I guess you do live in a marginal seat where your opinions matter, then it could make sense to take the effort of like reading things that you find challenging in order to improve your views. I mean, I, I think I would like to think that I try to do that with a reason. But I think the the truth is probably I am more motivated when it comes to like concrete decisions in my uh-huh. life, like who to who to be friends with. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, the accuracy of my information there bites a lot harder and I'm more likely to be scared of making a wrong wrong decision. Do you see what I mean? So uh, there is, of course, the issue of, of voting and whether um, whether your particular vote will make a difference. But yeah. in the aggregate, I think you'll agree that Adolf Hitler actually won an election, right? Most Germans thought that voting for Hitler in that election was going to work out great for them, right? That turned out to be factually incorrect. Sure. Did not work out so great for those Germans, right? And if they had had access to some less biased information and realized that it was probably not going to work out so great, maybe they would have voted differently. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems like a collective action problem, right? Where if you could get everyone together to all decide to either do a lot of research or not do very much research at all about whether Hitler is going to be a good leader, then they would like to decide to all put in a bunch of effort. But as an individual, given that your vote is so unlikely to change the outcome, like we're talking, you know, one in like many millions, it makes more sense just to emigrate <laughs> if you don't like it. Now, of course, well, people, are, people are more altruistic than that and they do care about their society, but you don't yeah. exactly get feedback when you make a mistake. But so Rob... Yeah, it it feels like we're conflating two separate 
problems which are both interesting hmm. it seems like on one hand there's a question of i could take everything you said and and turn it into an argument for why you should never vote in the first place just because it's a waste of your time right well you only should vote if you're like place a lot of weight on the well-being of others i think or, or you enjoy it for its own sake expressing your opinion mm-hmm. yeah. so this is this this is an in, very interesting argument one can have yeah. should you vote should you not and you can also argue which is a very an excellent topic for effective altruists i think to think of alternative voting systems and other ways of influencing society where people have more of an interest to actually wield power over society. Yeah. Uh, but I think that is quite separate from, from the question of the information flow and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to make it easier for people who want to have it to get accurate information about the world. Yeah. And I, I think the latter is also imp- quite important. And if you, if you go back and um, look at the um, big mistakes that countries have made, and I think personally that the germans made a huge mistake voting for hitler i think it was also a huge mistake for the u.s and the uk to invade iraq in hindsight yeah and um if you want to make sure that we don't make these kind of mistakes in the future when we have big elections that people are arguing about what you should do with with artificial intelligence or universal basic income or whatever part of the solution has to be that there has to be some way of getting reliable information right if, if that doesn't exist, you don't even have the luxury of making a well-informed, casting a well-informed vote. And I, I think it's what particularly motivated me here is, you know, my pledge to not bitch about things if I wasn't going <laughs> to actually do something about it wasn't that I'm allowed to earn the right to complain only if I dramatically transform the future of the world. It was just yeah. do something. And, and I agree with you that a lot of people don't even read newspapers at all. But the fact that even most of my colleagues where I work are very educated and actually read newspapers online all the time. Even most of them, I find, have been very hacked in certain ways. They don't like, they're very ignorant about artificial general intelligence and these issues. Many of them were for the Iraq war before they were against it, et cetera, et cetera. Means that there are even lots of people out there actually who you don't even have to convince to go look for this kind of information, we just don't have access to it. What happens instead, and this links back to David Rand, David Rand's research, is without something like Improve the News, if you just decide, well, you know, suppose someone is, says that I'm a Democrat and I'm kind of curious what those Republicans think, so where do I find out that? So they go click on Breitbart News and then they look at the front page and already after the first 20 seconds they feel just really offended that they, they see a photo there of their favorite politician where they clearly looked at 20 photos and picked the ugliest one yeah and then they I've literally had this experience yeah <laughs> i just feel like i can't take this i'm closing this tab yeah i think i might have made 30 seconds rather than 20 seconds but yeah we did a machine learning project actually where we just tried to predict the political bias of a newspaper by how ugly or good looking donald trump looked and hillary clinton looked <laughs> and it worked frighteningly well that is very interesting Um, so what we're doing differently with improve the news is here and we have this nuanced slider you you can see contrary opinions but that are actually presented in a very respectful way i think about it kind of like my vision for this was suppose i'm on i'm sitting on an airplane and i realize that the person next to me has a very different political opinion if i ask them very respectfully to explain a bit what they think i'm going to get a pretty friendly explanation right they're not going to try to piss me off so I want if I'm going to go read that sort of stuff, I would like something like that also. 
which is exactly the opposite of what gets the most clicks. So it's actually mm. quite hard mm. to find people who will ris- disagree with you respectfully. You know, the, the, the financial incentive in media today, where it's all about clicks, is to always present the opposing narrative in a mocking fashion to make it sound as ridiculous as possible, right? So take some random controversy, like abortion, for example, right? You can either describe the position of those who are against abortion as saying that they feel, they maybe believe that the unborn child has a soul and that needs to be protected or whatever. That's what you would say. That's what maybe they would say. Or you could say there are some total nutcases who just want to completely take away the any right to the woman that a woman has over her own body. Or on the other side, you you, you could accuse everybody who is for legal abortion to be a baby killer. And it's the latter kind of description that we usually face in the media because that's what gets the most clicks. And it, the effect it has is it makes people think that those who disagree with them are basically insane. Yeah. And just bad people that just have to be destroyed. Whereas we try to do exactly the opposite with our narratives that we always present each one the way that side would present it. So we hire journalists from across the spectrum and and we have each narrative written by someone who kind of agrees with it so that you can come away reading it and be like, well, you know, I really, I disagree with that point of view, but I, I see where they're coming from. Yeah. And that way we just, we spread less hate and more, not love necessarily, but at least more understanding. Yeah, it's it'd be good to get that, that paper you're referring to that suggests that uh, people are interested in hearing respectful presentation of views that they disagree with. But you already confirmed that, that you yourself are interested in that also, right? So it's not such yeah, a shocking I mean, conclusion. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that does that does make sense. It's also true that I enjoy reading like people who agree with me explaining why I'm right. Uh, there's like, I think it's the duality sure. of humanity, right? We both, yeah, we have yeah. like different conflicting, conflicting tendencies. I wasn't saying I, was, I wanted to read it because I, I think it's bad. I'm very interested to see how large that effect is. It's making me wonder, is there a business model where you start a newspaper that primarily publishes, you know, explanations of like the democratic position written in a way that is like respectful and uh, designed to be persuasive to Republicans and vice versa so you have these kind of <laughs> yeah op-eds that are really like not aimed at uh, people who already agree with the with the view and, and and go out of their way to try to make it appealing to people who naturally wouldn't agree with the with the position that's that's being advocated you know i have good news for you yeah yeah i have good news for you they already they already exist they just don't make okay. a lot of money and you don't see them very much so what we can with this site right we can make it much easier for you to find them Okay, yeah. But, you know, people share stuff all the time. It's like there's a kind of competitive market for content. If it's the case that people do really love hearing respectful new information that disagrees with their preconceptions, then why aren't these websites making bank? <laughs> it's kind of... I think it's because... So you must be familiar with Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2, right? Yeah, yeah. Media mainly sells itself now through System 1, you go out there and whoever, can, it's an impulse thing. You click on this or you click on that. And when and whenever you select the newspaper with your system one, it's going to be the clickbait that wins. The, whereas what you really want is to pick out your news diet using your system two. Just like your, your food diet, you're better off picking it out of system two. You don't want to go to some the supermarket super hungry because then system one gets too much of a vote in what you buy, right? And uh, you, you want to think in advance what, what sort of diet you want and, and plan ahead. The idea with Improve the News is exactly that, again, that you, you can think through, oh, you know, what kind of diet do I really want? And um, 
we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's very early days. It's been a ton of fun working on it. I have to say though, and and uh, it's been very empowering how easy, quick, and easy it's been to make something that a lot of people use. Thanks to machine learning, this, this project would have been completely impossible to do, you know, even ten years ago. And, and we've just started, so we're we're just earlier today, for example, right before this, we were looking at using some of the latest, very latest large language models that you and I discussed. Yeah, yeah. To further help with this, and there's uh, so much, so much cool stuff one one can uh, do much, much better. The greater, the greater. Uh, value proposition here for society i think is to create a, a truth and trust system that uh people from across political divides and also across geopolitical divides can all have a large trust in you know it, it's uh it's really striking how different things are with that in for example um, astrophysics versus politics right if you really want to know what's the distance to the andromeda galaxy there is a pretty good system where you can do a few clicks and you're going to get an answer and you're probably going to believe it regardless of whether you're British or Chinese or American, Republican or Democrat, right? And even when we have disagreements in science, you go to a conference, you, have, you might even have a fun debate and where two people have very different points of views, but they go for drinks afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you ask either one of them to articulate the other side's arguments, they'll do a really, really good job. They're not going to go into ad hominem attacks. They'll actually explain. Imagine how amazing it would be if, if you could get closer to that place for the existential risk issues that you care about so much about the future of mankind, of humanity, right? Where there is something which both the Chinese and the Americans and the British and the Russians and the Ukrainians all actually have a shared belief in and people across the political spectrum in our own countries, then we would suddenly be limited not by... Um, then we'd, be, then we'd be all be working on the same team and instead of spending you know, most of our time fighting against each other. Yeah. I think one interesting experience that I had uh, looking at Improve the News is just that it was like seeing the headlines from places that I wouldn't normally read was making me curious about like what do people from that perspective think, where previously mm. I kind of wouldn't have arisen, wouldn't have been very salient. So I'm like reading the stuff about Ukraine and I'm like, yeah. What do like non-interventionists say about Ukraine? You know, I haven't really, I haven't really, I haven't really encountered any of that typically. And and just like knowing, seeing that it's out there, I'm more likely to go and read something like that than when I'm scrolling through Twitter, where realistically I don't have people who have like you know very very different views that whose feeds I'm checking all the time, which is probably a bad habit. But <laughs> uh, nonetheless, like getting getting more conflicting ideas into into people's news feeds regularly is probably a good idea, and uh, improve the news can definitely do that. That's a very interesting thing you say there. Uh, in fact. So we also did this nerdy science paper, Samantha Delonzo, this awesome MIT student, and I, where we, we just asked the question if we could map the news bias landscape in a completely data-driven way. You know, yeah. Because if you ask human pundits, a lot of you know, people on the left will say that, that Fox News is biased, but New York Times is not, and CNN is not. And then people on the right are going to say, no, Fox is not biased, but CNN is. And it's like... Einstein's relativity, what do you make of this? But we wondered, is what if you just listen to the data itself? So we took 1 million articles from 100 newspapers and just gave the machine learning this really simple task. To read, for each article, predict which newspaper wrote it. <laughs> and it yeah. was surprisingly good. And so we weren't, you know, so then of course that begs the question of how did it do it? What is it about the article 
it must be because there's some kind of bias. What did it pick up on? And uh, we, we discovered that there was some very simple stuff, which is actually quite entertaining that it picked up on. It just noticed that it noticed that the frequencies of using diff- certain phrases varies dramatically. So if you take abortion articles, for example, some newspapers would have the word fetus a lot, where other articles would instead talk about unborn babies. Or if, and if you looked at articles about immigration, some would talk about undocumented immigrants a lot. And then and others, you would see, never see that phrase hardly, but they would, you would often see illegal aliens. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just from that, what the machine learning did was it, it took all the 100 newspapers and, and put them on a spectrum. It was actually not a one-dimensional spectrum like you might think. It was a two-dimensional spectrum. And one axis, the x-axis left to right, sort of very predictably went the, the way we humans would interpret as left to right. Although the, the, the computer had no idea, of course, what to make of it. But you could see how... Huh, there on one side is CNN and The Guardian and so on, and they talk a lot about fetuses and undocumented immigrants. And on the other side, you have Fox and Breitbart and and so on, and they talk a lot about illegal aliens and uh, yeah. unborn babies. But there was also the, the vertical axis. It's like, what's this? And it turned out that one was basically as significant to the machine learning as the left-right. So we started looking more, okay, what, what are the phrases that are different there? And then we noticed that, for example, near the bottom, you, you had... A lot of those newspapers used a lot of phrases like military industrial complex or big oil with capital B, capital O. Yeah. Whereas on the top, they didn't talk about military industrial complex. They talked a lot about the defense industry. And instead of writing big oil, they would write oil producers. And looking more at it, we also noticed that the newspapers up at the top are all big newspapers and the one at the bottom are all, all small newspapers. Yeah. So this we interpreted as the establishment axis of bias where the bigger ones were more close to power. And the, the, so the example that you brought up there, sort of like an anti, anti-interventionist stance on Ukraine or Iraq or, or whatever, we also have a lot of historical data. That's typically been pushed by the small ones. Yeah. In fact, it was quite interesting that um, in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq over the weapons of mass destruction, the New York Times was one of the ones that pushed the most for the invasion. And Fox News landed right next to the New York Times on the establishment axis on a lot of these topics. So there's not much difference, actually. And um, what that means is is uh, that kind of bias is so much easier to miss if you're just a normal person because all the big newspapers have it in the, uh, in the same way and the only ones that don't have it are the ones you never heard of. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but uh, if I learned anything as a scientist, it's, it's it, that if, if you really want to figure out what's going on, it's important to also listen to minority scientists because mm. you never know quite in advance who's right. And, and sometimes it's like some weird guy named Albert, Albert Einstein or whatever <laughs> comes in from left field that didn't even make it and phys- get, didn't even get a faculty job in physics. But maybe he's right on this one. Yeah. One approach to dealing with people, uh, I guess with the, the term that people seem to use these days is sense-making. I feel like that one must have come out of some, some branch of academia. But one way where the people I talk these days about uh, how, to, how to solve the problem of uh, people having incorrect beliefs about, <laughs> about politics in the world is having kind of government-backed fact-checking. I think there's some proposal for some sort of anti-disinformation agency uh-huh. that the US government uh, would operate where I think one idea they had was oh, that- Oh, they announced it just the other week. What what happens? Yeah, we have one now. They just announced we it the other week. We have one, okay. 
And I think they were going to be able to put information below tweets when they thought it was inaccurate. Is that is that is that the idea? So that you, you could like link you off to some page to get corrected about uh, about these wrong ideas. We don't know yet exactly what powers oh. have been vested in them. The, the, presumably, quite a bit more than that. Okay. Yeah, I think you're uh, you're against that. Do you, want, do you want to explain why? I guess above and beyond just the <laughs> fact that you know institutions have been have been wrong in the past. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, did not give me. <laughs> great vibes uh, and uh, I think frankly the people who are pushing this generally do it with the best of intentions it comes from a good place yeah but you know the saying the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions if we look for starters at the history of science right we've seen again how hard it was to know what the truth was and and yeah physics has been so much better off by being very disrespectful of, of authority and truth and, and having people like Galileo sticking you know publishing Sticking things to the man. People, yeah and um what we've also seen is that of course we talked earlier in this conversation about regulatory capture so as soon as you have any trusted entity in society then it's going to be in the interest of anything anyone or anything that's powerful to try to control that entity so why is it that big tobacco funded scientists so much because scientists were trusted so if you can get the scientists a bit more on your side or a little less against you, you know, great, fund them. If there is any kind of fact-checking entity that people start to trust, of course, the politicians are going to now start leaning on it and the companies are going to start leaning on it. It's just predictable um, dynamics, right? Yeah. And uh, even if it starts out very idealistic, unless they've built in really good mechanisms to keep it truly independent of power, power will, you know, obviously lean on it and um when it's even in its creation uh started by people who already have a lot of power you know you really got to worry about that yeah sorry about getting a bit on my soapbox about this but i have a lot of friends who've lived in uh very non-democratic countries even my wife grew up in uh, in a communist dictatorship and uh, i think a lot of people in the west have a kind of naive understanding of how those governments actually controlled people, thinking that they always generally just shot everybody who who said the wrong, who engaged in wrong think. Uh, the sad truth is they normally didn't have to shoot people. That was very, very rare. Mostly what they just had to do was make sure you, you knew that you wouldn't get a promotion if you said the wrong thing. You know, my mother-in-law, she uh, wanted to become a teacher but she wouldn't get admitted to that program in university because they thought she was a bit too bourgeoise from her background. And, you know, and, right. and a, a famous physics professor, a friend of mine, Alex Vilenkin, he, he didn't quite do what the communist government in, uh, in the Soviet Union wanted. So his admission to do his PhD in physics, which is very apolitical, you know, he couldn't go all of a sudden because he'd been put on some weird blacklist. It was just these little nudges uh, here and there. That's usually all it takes. You don't get the promotion. You, you get publicly shamed a little bit. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that the people here where I work at MIT now who are most freaked out about things like this, almost all of them are foreigners. Mm. And they come from China. They come from Iran. They come from Eastern Europe. Yeah, <laughs> like holy shit! I've seen these tendencies before. I don't like it. Whereas most of my American friends, are like, oh. what are you worried about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it strikes me 
as if I can get on my soapbox for a minute, it strikes me as an absolutely daft idea. Uh, I guess I guess for two reasons. So let's say that you're someone who's really worried about you know Trump, the big lie, you know, claiming that that the election was stolen. Then you should be against this because the person who's most likely to be appointing the head of this agency, or there's at least the most likely presidential winner in 2024, is the person who's actively promoting the disinformation that you're against. And obviously, if yes. you're like someone who supports that that view of things, who believes that the election was stolen, obviously you're not going to support it because like what all they're doing is claiming claiming the reverse. So it seems like from both points of view, this is an incredibly risky and like unappealing approach to dealing with this problem. Can I just chime in an anecdote about this before you move on from the stolen election? I just saw it. I just saw a tweet uh, the other day from uh, right after Trump won the election against Hillary Clinton, yeah. saying that Trump had stolen the election from Clinton. And you know who tweeted it? It was the current. It was Biden's new um, <laughs> press secretary. Okay. So th- yeah. this just goes to show that uh, what goes around comes around. Yeah. So. So that's that's one issue. It seems like it's a policy that's being developed as if the world is going to end in two years' time, and like this is this is it. Yeah. All we have to worry about is the immediate term. The other thing is, so you've been talking about how there are particularly institutions, corporations that have an awful lot of influence over the information that we consume. They're potentially like far too powerful in their ability to to shape public opinion. But almost the only institution that is more powerful than them is the U.S. federal government or governments in general. It's like kind of you've got yeah. like governments and you've got these major corporations and yeah. empowering probably the biggest single player in terms of information and shaping public opinion uh, <laughs> as an alternative to this to this other other set of organizations. It just doesn't really seem like a, it seems like you need some other third agency or some more distributed process here to to establish yeah. truth and, and share information. You, like just creating more like incredibly concentrated sources of power and influence uh, <laughs> almost almost just cannot solve the problem by definition. I couldn't couldn't agree more. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. You you know. Uh... Lord Acton's quip that the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when when, um, when we champion this democratic ideal that we have more distributed power, you know, it's exactly to avoid this sort of constant power concentration. And and, and frankly, I maybe shouldn't drop the f bomb, but I remember in Sweden when I was studying political ideologies, the definition they gave of fascism was actually not that you walked around with leather boots in a funny way, but it was simply the merger of corporate and government power. Mm, yeah. Right. And, and uh, if you have governments and the most powerful companies working together to decide what's true or not, again, it, it feels like <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? What could we- <laughs> yeah because then who's left right yeah it's yeah so so the decentralization this is what's so one thing that's just super exciting about modern technology it in general another very controversial topic is of course cryptocurrencies DeFi, as the crypto fans call it decentralized finance a lot of people are talking about dgov also how you can have more decentralized decision making enabled by these technologies. It's, I think the jury is out about exactly what's good and bad and how things are going to work out. But this is a very interesting space. I hope more people with high ideals who like to think big will go into thinking about these things because I think it's not obvious that more AI will necessarily and inevitably cause power to get more concentrated. It could also be the opposite. Yeah, And maybe there is, are actually some clever social technical innovations that can happen, which cause power to become more decentralized. It, it was very difficult to have decentralized power when, when people far apart couldn't communicate with each other. 
right? When they had no way of building trust without being part of the same empire or whatever. But a lot of the tools are coming into place now with blockchain and, and other technologies. And I, I actually think of Improve the News as in that very spirit where, where you just empower everybody with a better bullshit detector. Because you mentioned disinformation. If you think about all the different ways in which things can be bullshit in the media ecosystem, pardon my French, disinformation or misinformation means that there is something which is claimed to be true, which is actually false, right? In the ML analysis we've been doing on News Bias so far, that actually, that you see a fair bit about that. And that yes, it's a problem, but it's not the biggest problem. A much bigger way people bias things is just by omissions, just what you just don't mention. So um, we talked about that earlier. People talked a lot more about how many sanctions they should put on Russia over Ukraine than they talked about how many sanctions they should put on the U.S. for invading Iraq. That we don't talk. We talk a much, much more about the terrible tragedy that Putin has caused now in the Ukraine than we talk about the terrible tragedy that's been caused in in Yemen by a, a government that the U.K. and the U.S. has been supporting, and and. Uh, these sort of omissions are things which are just as easy to detect from machine learning as the fake news or the disinformation, but they're much harder for people to detect because mm. you know, we see what we see. We don't see what we don't see, right? Yeah. And if none of our friends are talking about it either, it's easy to not even know that it's going on, right? Also, like you have to omit almost everything because you can't go around describing every fact that's true in the world. So it's harder to establish that an omission is a mistake because you've omitted 99% of stuff and it's like, yeah, well, should this be in the tiny fraction of things that get highlighted or not? Is hard yeah, to say. although, you know, the cool thing is, this is one of the one of the visions with some of the tools we're building is if you can find a real gem of an omission, you know, just like if you go out in the, in the forest or and you look for gems, it's very hard to find one randomly. But if you do find one, it's really easy to convince your friends, look, this is actually a gem, look at it. Uh, if the machine learning finds some super glaring omission, right, that, uh, for example, here is this, this great article about why wind power is terrible because wind turbines kill birds. And you look at a bunch of facts about how many birds were killed, and it looks like a respectable article. It's very hard to see what the omission is. Uh, for this particular one, we turned up that... Um, First of all, they omitted to mention that windows actually kill 2,000 times more birds than wind turbines. <laughs> wind turbines. Yeah, Seems you've relevant. probably seen this kind of accident sometime in your life where a bird Absolutely. flies into your window breaks. And cats yeah. kill 8,000 times more birds than windows. But the article didn't talk about banning cats or something or cats were bad. Yeah. So once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a weird omission. Because yeah, if, if they really wanted to talk about the tragedy of birds getting killed, they could be like, yeah, yeah here is this problem. Focus. Birds are getting killed. We're effective altruists. We want to reduce this. Here are the top 10 <laughs> sources of bird deaths. And then they wouldn't even get to the wind turbines because they're not on the top 10. And then another omission was that this article was actually funded by an organization, which, according to Wikipedia, is a, a fossil fuel lobby group. Mm. And they didn't mention that either. So do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to explain away. Well, once you find it, but the hard thing is finding it. So like, wouldn't yeah. it be cool... If you can build some machine learning powered tool or, or crowdsource tool or whatever, right, where it makes it really easy for you to find real gems like this, it's very easy for you also to confirm things if you want. That, that empowers you to see through a lot of BS manipulation that it's easy to miss otherwise. 
so I'm actually fairly hopeful here that uh, by bringing these technologies, giving them to people for free and, and having them developed it with the sole purpose of decentralizing the power, you know, building, giving people bullshit detectors, you can actually do a lot because there's no financial incentive to do it. So, of course, that's why it hasn't happened. But if you're a nonprofit and you're willing to just spend some money on it, that's pretty straightforward. You can, actually. Yeah. Okay. One final question I had, I definitely wanted to get out before we wrap up, is just, I suppose, a lot of uncertainty about how, you know, sort of AI revolution might, might play out seems to rest on this question of like, what is an agent that is much more intelligent than, than humans going to actually be able to accomplish? Because it seems like you could have a mind that's much larger and much more advanced than that of humans that still won't necessarily be able to do things that are completely magical to us. You know, it might be able to persuade, uh, it might, might be able to, you know, advocate very persuasively on behalf of, of its interests, but only like somewhat more persuasively than a very persuasive person, such that it can't trivially use its persuasiveness to, to outwit us. And it, and it seems like this is a very hard question to answer because almost by net definition, it's extremely hard to predict exactly what a being that's much smarter than you would do, <laughs> would do in a domain. Because if you could, then you would be as smart as that and you'd be able to do it, do it yourself. So yeah, do, do you have any view on this question of whether or not a super intelligent AI would kind of its behavior and achievements would seem magic to us? Or would it just be like more recognizably like, like a person, but more skilled? So that's partly a question about human psychology and partly a question of physics. So let's mm. do both of them. If, it, if for some reason, if it just wants to take over Earth and for some reason can't persuade us, I mean, they could just build a drone army and kill us all or just get rid of the oxygen from the atmosphere or something that we, we couldn't prevent. It's kind of like if you have a bunch of, uh, if you for some reason, if humanity somehow set its mind on, on killing all the horses on the planet, I'm, I'm sure we could figure out a way even if we couldn't persuade them to do a, to commit suicide voluntarily or whatever. Uh, that, I think, is a given. On the other hand, the laws of physics, the limits set by them, you can't surpass no matter how smart you are, right? And um, that's why I actually ended up having a lot of fun when I wrote the book, writing a whole chapter, thinking through precisely this. So we know there's a speed limit, speed of light, we know there is a limit to how much mass you can put in one place before it turns into a black hole and ruins whatever we were trying to do. There's also a fundamental limit on computation that Seth Lloyd once worked out, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the good news there is that each of those limits are just orders and orders of magnitude above where we are today on computation, like how much you can compute with a kilogram of matter. If I remember correctly, we're a million, 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 million times away from that limit right now. So I think for all practical purposes, it would seem like total magic to us if we could experience that kind of um, technology. Yeah, I guess, are there any examples of that? Because when I think about the areas where AI is already surpassing people, you know, is it better than us at chess, at Go, computer games? Uh, in some cases, I think like computer chip design, you know, predicting, predicting what movies you're going to like and things like that. I guess actually also recognizing things, so it's a visual recognition. In all those cases... It's clearly like very impressive and like better than us, you know, I'm sure it plays Mario super well and comes up with ghost strategies that we didn't. But it's not like unrecognizably different, uh, even though it's mm -hmm. had quite a bit of time right. to to surpass us. Is, is that maybe just because the, those domains are so restricted in what you could do? I mean, ultimately, in Go, all you do is stick down a stone and a point. So like how impressive can it be? And maybe if you had like the full action set of a person or, or an agent in the world, that it would be able to think of like much cleverer stuff. That's a really fun question. I mean, first of all, I would, it's important to remember that the, the AI we have today is still pretty dumb, right? So if you're underwhelmed by some aspect of it, 
you should be. Yeah. You know, even even though your laptop can multiply numbers together about a billion times <laughs> faster than I can, it's not that profound, right? Or a rocket can go a lot faster than I can go, but it's not qualitatively different. Uh, there's probably a limit to how impressed we can get just because just like you have to be pretty musical to really hear the difference between the world's best musician and the world's thousandth best musician. Similarly, like if you're trying to impress a squirrel with your intelligence, you know, <laughs> you, Einstein, yeah. uh, whatever, uh, they, they would probably all impress the squirrel by about the, about the same amount, right? Yeah. Because uh, it's just so far, but the squirrel can't even appreciate a lot of the subtleties. You're, ma you're making these weird noises with your mouth, whatever, but... Maybe the things which would impress us the most is, is is technology that the AI then goes and builds that we can actually see. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess the squirrel could 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 appreciate a plane even if it doesn't understand uh, all of the subtleties. Although maybe not as much as you do because it might think it's just a weird kind of bird. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's like one one potential issue that we just uh, even when ML algorithms are doing stuff that's extremely impressive, we might actually struggle to perceive it. It's <laughs> a little bit alarming. I guess hopefully hopefully we will continue to be able to stay alive for long enough to uh to see some of those things <laughs> and hopefully they're <laughs> operating in our interest rather than against us if i can just have 20 more seconds since we've Absolutely. talked about some uh, negative stuff i just want to end on a positive note it, yeah go for it it's so natural to end up talking more about the negative because we humans are always better at Im imagining bad things and good things right yeah that's why we have much more elaborate descriptions of hell than heaven and in, in religious texts but the fact of the matter is that uh what we've learned from science and technology so far is that if we can actually get this right, we have such a mind-blowingly amazing potential where we could help life flourish like never before, living healthy, wealthy, inspiring lives, not just for the next election cycle here on Earth. We could go on for billions of years. We could help life spread if, if we're so inclined into the cosmos and do even more amazing things. Not even the sky is our limit. It's just so inspiring and exciting to think about this that I want to encourage everyone listening to this to really ask themselves what positive future vision they're really on fire about. Because the more we can articulate this and share with our friends, right, the more likely we are to actually live in that future. Yeah, we'll have a, have a whole lot more about what's to be done and potential career options for people who want to make a difference to this uh, in, uh, in, in coming episodes. My guest today has been Max Techmark. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Max. Thank you so much. If you're interested in working at Max's Future of Life Institute, there are a few roles up at the moment on the 80,000 Hours job board. One is for a program manager for autonomous weapons in Europe, where your responsibilities would include tracking positions of European countries on an autonomous weapons treaty and monitoring UN discussions in Geneva. They're also hiring a social media manager to represent their organization across a range of social channels and to enhance their online presence. And finally, a position that might be especially interesting to listeners of this show is that they're hiring for a new host and director for the Future of Life Institute podcast. You can find all of those positions at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. And I just wanted to add a quick plug for our other show called 80K After Hours. We are ramping up content over there, and you can expect to hear interviews I've done with Kuhan Jaya Pragasan on effective altruism community building, and Andre Jimenez Soria on shrimp animal welfare, as well as audio versions of our articles on space governance and founding new projects to tackle top problems over the next six or so weeks. It's a place where we feel both more free to experiment and more comfortable with making content for narrower audiences. But if you're a fan of the show, I am confident you will find something to enjoy over there. 
In case you missed our earlier releases, you can also go back and listen to Alex Lawson on his advice for students, Michelle and Habiba on what they would tell their younger selves, Clay Grobard and Robert Denufil on forecasting the war in Ukraine, and me and Kieran on the philosophy of this show, the 80,000 Hours podcast. You can find that show anywhere you listen to this one. Just search for 80K After Hours. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.